WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 344. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters. Today's show was recorded on the 11th of October, 2018. In today's show, a runway excursion couple of bad passenger behavior incidents, an airport mysteriously disappears, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, Tizard's Trunk. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 344 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast we do every week to cover news in aviation and, of course, your great feedback. And here to help me do that. Doctor? 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 From her doctor. lakeside doctor. studio in doctor. South Carolina. Doctor. A doctor, doctor. skydiver, doctor. marathon runner, doctor. strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. That's me. Hey, Captain Jeff. Glad to see you this afternoon and looking forward to a great show with you guys. Excellent. We're looking forward to it as well. And also joining us from his studio in England, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and hi, Steph, in the background. Um, hi. Uh, yeah, I've just had a, I'm, I'm out of bed, uh, and it's dark already. I don't seem to have seen the sun in a very long time. It's great to be on the show. Turning into a vampire. <laughs> yeah. you, you didn't hear the news? The sun is no longer going to come up. Oh, God. That's it's gone. not a new it, initiative from the White House, is it? It burned out. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just a few days ago that we recorded episode 343 and here we are again already at least it seems like it didn't there I wasn't much this, time this week between. went by really quickly already i'm yeah. not sure why Have you i'm not sure way? either but um so how speaking of your week going by quickly uh steph so the last we heard from you we were you were joining us from chicago and uh you had to, oh that was actually saturday that wasn't was saturday it? yep wow <laughs> That's strange. It just seems like we did this a couple days ago, but okay, whatever. No, I feel the same way. So yeah, I left you a little early on Saturday um, before the show actually ended. I had a, a nice get together with some of my relatives in Chicago for lunch that day and then had basically spent the rest of the day eating somehow. So a uh, little bit of fueling for the marathon, which was the next day and woke up Sunday morning. Um, nice kind of overcast, 60 degree, cool day in Chicago, intermittent rain showers, which is perfect weather if you ask me for running a marathon. And it went really well. I ran a 352.19, so three hours minutes. Ooh, wow. Almost yeah. faster than my previous best, which was in Boston in April. So How much faster? Almost six minutes. 
Wow. Wow. I'm very pleased. Oh, we need to do this. Very nice. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great race. I had a lot of uh, other friends and family running the race that day as well, so it was fun to see their times and splits. And for the most part, it was uh, well done all around. A um, couple of other personal bests had out on the course that day, and some people just had the goal of finishing, which they did. And then I had a really long rest of the day where I had to. Well, we went out for dinner afterwards and had stuffed our faces with some Italian beef sandwiches and Chicago be- er, and uh, Chicago dogs because that's what you do in Chicago. And oof, oof. when I went back to the uh, the hotel, packed up my stuff, took a little nap because I was tired, and got on the train, went to the airport, got on the plane, and then a thunderstorm finally arrived over the field, so they closed the ramp. So we sat on the plane for an hour. And I finally got home around two o'clock in the morning on Monday. So that's how I started my work week. Ooh. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Which is and why I think it's gone by quickly because I've just been tired. I'm either working or sleeping at this point. Did you have to get up at the normal time to go to work on oh, Monday yeah. morning? Ugh. So the, here's a question for you. Do the folks at work that you work with, do they know about your your travels and your marathons and all that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. Okay. They generally know where I am. Good. Just wondering if you're keeping that as part of your secret life. I have a secret life. Well, I don't know. Maybe it, it, we, it, we you, don't know. It's secret. we don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I'm sorry. No, I mentioned there's, it. there's no secrets. I yeah. where I am. I, okay. I'm curious, Jeff. How do you keep in touch with people you know when you're actually running? Do you all, you know, have uh, yeah, actually, and... well, kind of. Um, so nowadays, um, most of the major marathons will have. Um, tracking process of some sort and the big ones actually do it via their own apps for your phone so during the race what you do is you load up all the people you want to follow into your tracker app and it generally will give you notifications either for different um, uh, mile markers that they cross kilometer markers that people cross but in this case it was just the finishes so it was fun i could see it would give me notifications when the you know when the winners finished so mo farah who won the race for the men finished when i was at like mile 11 or something. So that was interesting. Uh, it's like, oh. He starts a lot earlier, doesn't he? No, he started half an hour before me. Oh, oh. okay. Right. <laughs> so that just tells, I mean, those guys are fast. It was 205 something. So wow. an hour and chain, hour and 40 something minutes behind them, just running time wise. Wow. That's and then, <laughs> then, yeah, as, as, uh, you know, so I saw um, my youngest brother ran a 326, I think. 329, 326. Yeah. So I got his notification when I was at like mile 20 that he finished because he started about a half an hour ahead of me as well. And then mine. And then I could see after I crossed the finish, the rest of uh, my family and friends. Is that on your watch or do you have to run no, with your well, phone? Well, the, the notifications come through on the watch. If I didn't have my phone, it would have come through on the watch anyway, I believe. And uh, actually, I'm not sure about that because I think the that app uh, needs the phone to work. But I had my phone with me. All right. Okay. Generally. Hold that phone. thought. Fascinating though. Great technology. Do they RFD you or something? RFD? Yeah, that's um well you know what I should grab the bib. The bibs have a little tracker on the on the back. Jeff's looking oh, like cool. he wants us to okay. stop yeah. talking. No, no. Oh, what'd you say? Hold that thought. Well, yeah, because I thought we were gonna go into talking about technology, especially Oh, oh, oh yeah. Well we'll hold that oh, thought. Yeah. Wearable technology uh, here. But anyway, yeah, there's a there's a uh I think everyone refers to it as a chip, but it's a, I think it's RFID on the back of your bib and they put out uh, mats along the course. So you have to, you have to 
cross those markers in order to prove a that you ran the race and get your splits along the way. Oh wow! Okay. So there's no queues across these markers. Is that I mean, they're pretty big? You can all run through them. Oh yeah, it goes all the way across the street. It's kind of oh, just okay. a flat mat. A little. It almost looks like a tiny speed bump, but it's not a anything that's going to trip you or anything. Okay. And they come up with the. Uh, they're usually at um, every five kilometers. And in Chicago, they have an extra one at eight kilometers. They have one at uh, the halfway point, which is 21 kilometers. And I think there was one more out there as well. Sounds like stalker's heaven. Oh, it really is. And the app for um, Chicago, at least, and a couple of the other big marathons is really good because it guesstimates where you are on the course. So it shows you a little uh, circle with your initials on it running through the streets along the course. All right. And it's pretty accurate. I will say I used it. We went back out on the course. Um, My youngest brother and I went out to see our other brother, uh, finish because he was a little bit behind us. He started in the third wave behind me. Um, so we were able to get back out onto the near the finish line about 800 meters to go. And it was pretty accurate where it said he was coming. He was he was right there on the spot. Brilliant. And have you counted all your toes? Yeah, they're all here, all present and accounted for. Excellent. All the little pinkies, are they still pink? Still pink. Yeah. All <laughs> the black. Well done. <laughs> uh, well, that, that, those $250 shoes, they're worth every Everybody. cent. Every And yes, I'm yeah. an insane person that bought a pair of $250 shoes. Yeah, you probably get were, to use them again, though. Yep, I'll use them at least one more time. <laughs> <laughs> In uh, about well, that's, that's, that's cheap. Over, that's $125 shoes. Then. That's right. <laughs> just over three weeks' time in New York City on November 4th. Yay. Excellent. Hey, nice. Three weeks' time in... What day is that? Uh, wait, that'll November be the 4th, November 4th. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I never. I land in New York that day. Do you really? Yeah. Well, you should come out to the course because it's a late start. I think I start at 1030 in the morning, so there will be runners out on the course until 5 or 6 o'clock in the evening. Well, I never. Well, I might look at that, look for that. Yeah, I've got a Newark uh, landing on that day. Cool. Perfect. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Be good to see you. Well, I wonder if it's too late for me to see if there's a trip because I just put my bids in and they're due at six o'clock tonight. Oh, cool. that'd be like pretty. during the show. You pause and like yeah. take a look at it if you're if you're going to. Yeah, you mind you mind if I do that? No, not at all. Okay, okay, I'm going to hit the big pause button. Okay. Pause. All right. <laughs> So, um, have you run any at all since the marathon on Sunday or have you just been nope. taking it easy? No, I've been swamped at work again. Uh, so it's mostly yeah. been survival mode this week, uh, trying to catch up on sleep a little bit. And actually I'll probably go for a run this afternoon or evening, depending on what time we finish. I wanted to do last night, but then I had other stuff to do. Actually, so, my other stuff to do was that my friend, one of my friends who ran the race with me came over to my house and we watched the, uh, recorded TV, TV coverage of the marathon. <laughs> Did you spot yourself? And no. Ah. I must admit, I, I looked at all the newspapers, pictures of Mo Farah finishing, and I was looking in the background of every picture to wait to see Steph run through. Nah. No, I wasn't anywhere near. He was he was probably back to the hotel and showered and eating lunch and you know having a, a beverage by the ah. time I even came close to the finish. Ah. That's how there much time go. difference there is between him finishing and me finishing. 
So, Steph, you said you're going to go out for a run, perhaps, after the show today. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm guessing then that the, the big old Hurricane Michael has passed your area. It has. We, um, I mean, you know, first of all, there the pictures coming in from uh, Panama City Beach area in Florida looks, they look pretty uh, devastating. Yeah. So thoughts and prayers to all those folks down there, because this was turned into a major hurricane very quickly. And um, I guess kind of a blessing in disguise as it moved quickly out of the area as well, even though it left behind a lot of destruction. Um, but it was, you know, we got uh, part of it, the remnants of it. It was still a tropical storm when it arrived here this morning, but within, gosh, maybe seven hours, six, seven hours, it was through and gone. And you can see the window behind me. If you're watching the video, it's sunny again. We had a little bit of heavy rain, a little bit of wind, not not really that much wind. I did see a couple big trees down kind of on my path to and from work, but nothing, nothing major here. Just some mild flooding in the streets. Well, glad to hear that. Yeah. I must admit, on the way home, uh, one of my FOs, uh, I don't know, he, I, he just picked a random airport that was uh, under the hurricane and uh, pulled up its uh, digital ATIS. So we got the airport information. And uh, it was 111 knots across the runway. So yeah. going, Whoa, that's impressive. A little bit of out, out of limits, I think. Yeah, just a wee bit. I think yeah. with that kind of a wind, you'd probably be able to land across the runway because yeah. you'd only have a ground speed of like 30 knots. <laughs> <laughs> Any yeah, plane I fly would be going backwards. That's right. <laughs> Over anyway, yeah, so the uh, the big old hurricane, uh, which nobody, it just kind of came out of nowhere, and that was just this little thing. Oh, it looks like there might be a little tropical something out there, and yeah, it may turn into a hurricane, may not. And if it does, it's just not going to be a big deal. And then it just kept kept gaining strength and kept gaining strength and said, oh, looks like it's heading for the Florida panhandle. It'll probably be a two or a three. And um, it was just shy of a category five, yep. I think, by, by just two miles per hour. Sustained <laughs> wow. with 155 miles an hour. Wow. Yeah, I must admit, I've got a, a hurricane tracker on my uh, iPad, and I looked at it when I checked in for work because uh, obviously I was flying down to Miami, and I was thinking, Ugh! and it just had it. It was a fairly benign, and it was tracking well to the uh, west of the panhandle, so I wasn't too worried. Uh, and uh, I briefed the crew that there'd be a lot of rain and stuff, but it luckily it carried on tracking well to the west of us. So, uh, in fact, uh, you know, the day of our sort of uh, departure when we were expecting it to be pretty wet and horrid, um, there was actually sunshine and, uh, you know, it was fine. Yeah. Yeah. And how did uh, how did the Atlanta area fare? It was okay? Oh, you know, pretty much the same as Charlotte. Um, kind of some uh, got, wind and got rain. some rain and wind, you know. Um, and so it, it's still, the storm probably had a little bit more energy in it than when it ended up getting, being uh, near the Charlotte area. But... Um, yeah, uh, no damage here. A lot of rain, but uh, you know we needed it. So, yeah, we didn't really, unfortunately. Well, I don't know if it's you know too much of a good thing at this point in terms of the rainfall totals, but there are definitely parts of the Carolinas that don't need any more water at the moment. How's your garage doing? It's dry. Thanks. Good. Excellent. Well, Nick, how about yourself? Any hurricanes over there in the UK? Oh, we had a, a bit of a storm go through. We get all your secondhand weather. So, uh, yeah, by the time they get to us, they're, they're named a storm, some of them, but nothing dramatic. Uh, uh, just uh, when I woke up, it was uh, absolutely pelting down outside. Just a bit of a squall went through. But no, it's been uh, pretty much uh, good. We've had a bit of a, a, a Indian summer 
here uh, in autumn. So, uh, in fact, even today, uh, I was driving home. It was uh, 17, 16, 17 degrees. That's the low 60s Fahrenheit. So quite a pleasant day, apart from that squall line. Uh, but I wouldn't know much about it since uh, you know landed at 8 o'clock in the morning and came home, went straight to bed, got up around sunset, and looked out the window and went, oh, it's dark again. <laughs> This is no fun. I don't like this life. <laughs> so, no, so it's one of the problems of uh, doing these uh, Atlantic flights where you do an overnight return. You have to have a full day of recovery, and even then you're not straight the next day. So I, I find it uh, much more pleasant doing an overnight flight into uh, the States and then a day return, but sadly not many of our schedules are organized that way around. You don't know overnight flight into the states. You, you know you're kind of doing all your odd, odd sleeping and uh, trying to recover from that all night ordeal, um, whilst you're on your layover. In which case, there's nothing lost really. And uh, when you get home, you're landing. Um, you know, in the evening, close to bedtime, you can just go to bed, get up the next day, and you know, life's normal. So, it's the other way around. It can be a bit of a nightmare. So, it's just something us long haul guys uh, have learned to live with. Well, how was Miami? Miami was nice, actually. Uh, it was, uh, we, we stayed up in Mid Beach. Uh, and it's not the you know most fantastic part. I prefer being South Beach, which was a bit nicer. But uh, um, we got a lovely, uh, uh, some lovely restaurants and things nearby. So that was good. But much more importantly, I went down to the Apple Store and I found my Apple Watch. Ray, Yay. thank you very much, Jeff. Nice. So I'm I'm very proud of it. It's lovely, lovely. I'm just getting to used to it. And Steph's my uh, tutoring me in all the various <laughs> intricacies. They were, doing, they were doing the walkie-talkie I, I thing feel like before I'm we start started getting broadcasting messages at all hours of the day. You and are absolutely. Whenever I'm bored. Um, <laughs> so it, it, I'll tell you what is absolutely brilliant about it is that. Uh, you know, every time you'd hear your phone go ding and you think, oh, God, I wonder what that is. You'd have to dig it out, find out where it is, et cetera. Now I just look at my wrist and it has all the messages and all the little notifications that would normally be uh, hidden in my pocket. I just look and, oh, there they all are. So, I mean, I realize it's it's a fancy watch with I can all sorts of time zones on it, which is brilliant for a pilot because I can just look at my watch and instead of having to do any mental maths, I've got UTC, I've got my destination time zone. I've got the UK time zone there so I can inform the passengers. Mind you, most of them have probably got iWatches as well. In fact, I felt like saying, if you want to know what time it is in London, buy an iWatch. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the uh, the phones, when you go into different time zones, at least here in the US, and I'm assuming it's true wherever you are in the world, the um, it'll pick up the cell signal and then it'll reset the uh, the time to the local time zone. Yep. yep. Does the watch do the same? Exactly. Okay, cool. You have to and wait till you land, though. I do so, the exact, yeah. well, yeah, I do the exact same thing, though, Nick. I have, um, I always have London or uh, UK time on here, so I know what time it is for you because yes, I'm not sending messages at inappropriate times of the day. Well, that's right. <laughs> I pr promise not to walkie talkie you at 2 a.m. How's uh -huh. that? We'll see how long that promise lasts. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it comes through if I have my watch on the charger. Steph, Steph wake up. <laughs> yeah. The other great thing is, uh, you know, you can put all sorts of things on the dial. So, uh, and including, I've got a little uh, contact there of uh, my lovely wife, Jilly, 
So uh, anytime I want to call her, I can do it just by tapping my watch face. So it's really uh, good. Did you get the 44 millimeter or the 40? 44. It looks great on my wrist. Nice big yep. wrist. Uh, and even with the biggest rast strip, rat, rast strip. <laughs> wrist <What>? strap. <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> my spoonerism. That's fatigue for you. Um, I'm on the last one hole. So, you know, I couldn't uh, have, you know, they don't make a bigger one that I know of. Oh, well. well, they do. It's just aftermarket stuff, I'm sure. But, or uh, third party stuff. Oh, and it's, it's pretty good at, uh, for some reason, I seem to manage. There was I was talking and it was writing what I was talking. I don't know what it was doing. Perhaps it's sending some of the message of the last things. So I just it was actually very accurate. How does it do that? It's just have you uh, have you fallen down yet? And uh, it, it called. No, the, I thought uh, about doing that just for fun, <laughs> just to test. That's it. the real about... reason he he suggested you get the watch. You know. Yeah, because yeah. I'm an old man. And I we were concerned about concerned you. about your well being. Exactly right. I noticed the uh, the ECG uh, app isn't out yet, so I not can't yet. wait to see yeah. uh, whether I, I'm in atrial fibrillation or not. Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to your report regarding that. <laughs> All right. Anyway, it's a brilliant watch, Haboon, and uh, I'm delighted to have it at last. Well, excellent. So uh, pretty much just uh, flying a trip uh, to Miami and back and sleeping a bit um, and yeah. getting the watch. So, Two days uh, and then cool. straight back to Miami again. So uh, right. and a good thing about these trips is uh, a company, because of our contract, the company uh, give us an extra pilot. So we've got three pilots. The bad thing is that we don't actually physically need three pilots. So they don't provide any rest facilities. So on our a330 there there is no crew rest put on the aircraft it's they just cram some more seats in and they don't block a seat off for us so uh if uh, we want to take rest away from the controls there's really if the aircraft's full there's nowhere to go which is oh god and in fact you're more comfortable just sitting in your seat so often the third pilot just kicks around the back of the cockpit getting in everyone's way um so you know not ideal but luckily uh this trip uh, there were a couple of unsold seats both going out and going home which uh, we uh, we used which was fine um the only problem is uh, i i discovered i hadn't sat in our premium economy seats before not for any length of time and um they're they're actually not very soft <laughs> and i was I was trying to sleep, and I'm going, oh, God, these things are hard. It's like sitting on a concrete bench. But uh, there you go. Uh, apart from that, I was fine. There's your honest review of Acme Red. <laughs> no. Passenger Acme experience. Red, exactly right. Uh, yes. All right. Well, I had a um, three-day trip uh, left on Monday, and uh, it was just a nice, easy one-day, one-leg, not one-day, one-leg day to Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, had a nice layover there. Next day, two legs, ended up in Tulsa. Yeah, had a little bit of a weather system to get through in Tulsa. In fact, um, we got a message from our company, and we were watching it uh, ourselves on our Flight Weather Viewer app, that uh, this frontal system looked like it was going to arrive at Tulsa exactly the same time that we were. Uh-oh. And Yeah, bad timing. Luckily, we had a lot of fuel, and our dispatcher uh, had, uh, you know, you know, thought ahead and knew that we might need some contingency fuel to kind of loiter because of the weather. 
And let's see, there was a Southwest flight and an Envoy flight, and they were uh, both ahead of us, and they were continuing their approaches. And my first officer and I looked at each other and went, hmm, oh, I wonder if they're going to make it in or not. And I thought, you know what? I think it's best because the thing was traveling so quickly. It was like a 35 to 50 knots um, moving over the ground. I said, I think we should try to figure out a way to get on the other side of this frontal system and then just hold over there for a bit and then wait for it to clear the airport. And that's what we did. A little bit bumpy uh, going even through the softest part that we could find. But uh, then all of a sudden we heard the Southwest flight and the Envoy flight on the radio and uh, something about, uh, yeah, we'd like to try that again. And both of them had to uh, do missed approaches uh, because of the weather right over the top of the airport, heavy thunderstorms. So, um, anyway, it was a happy ending. We got on the ground and we only arrived at our gate about six minutes late. So that worked Good out pretty job. well. How long did you actually hold for? Uh, we ne- didn't actually hold per se. We just kind of, uh, got vectored around on the other side. So it was probably, uh, maybe about a 10 or 15 minute, um, delay. Uh, well, that total. weather went through nice and quick then. Yes. Very quickly. And, uh, so that was uh, an interesting day. And I thought, well, hopefully we won't see any more interesting weather. And then I thought, oh, wait a minute. On the last day, we have to go through Atlanta and then go down to Sarasota, Florida and back. And I'm thinking, I think there might be some kind of a weather system down there in Florida. And, uh, of course, we just talked about Hurricane Michael devastating the uh, panhandle. And I got a chance to look at it, at least the... Uh, the perimeter of the storm uh, up close and personal. And, you know, it wasn't bad. We stayed out of the bands and uh, for the most part, just a little bit of a light turbulence, but uh, wasn't too bad at all. And then had to pick our way around some cells uh, in one of the bands uh, getting into the airport at Sarasota Bradenton. But, um, you know, it was uh, it was doable and we got in and the winds were a little, a little dicey. Uh, the runway alignments one four. I think the winds were, 170, 180, uh, about 30 to 40 degrees off, uh, gusting to a little over 30 knots. So got a chance to practice some gusty crosswind procedures. Oh, I even got a, from the tower, nice landing, Acme. I almost said the real airline name. (laughs) Uh, Nice landing, Acme. And I thought, oh, okay. Now, one of the passengers, of course, had to make some kind of a comment. Yeah, uh, you you really saved it at at the end there or something like that. I'm thinking, what? (laughs) <laughs> That's, what you just That's right. Yeah, because there was some mechanical turbulence toward the uh, uh, getting close to touchdown because of the way the uh, uh, they extended the runway and they had to build a, a retaining wall and a kind of a big berm and the winds were coming up over that area and causing some uh, some eddies, some uh, turbulent air right there toward the uh, toward the end. Uh, but it wasn't too bad. So made it down there, made it back in one piece and uh, got home before the rain started hitting the Atlanta area yesterday afternoon. So timing is everything. I mean, have you ever ever flown an approach where you're really working hard and you think, my God, this is awful. It's really, you know, the rain's coming out, rattling off the windshield. The wipers are going full blast. You fight your way in your land and you, you struggle off. You think, well, thank the Lord for that. Thank we got in. All right. By the time you taxi in, the weather's cleared. The sun's <laughs> out. The yeah. wind's died. And you're going, what? What? The birds Why? are singing. Exactly. I just nearly died doing that. <laughs> I know. Now look at it. 
That is so true. I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but I was doing an approach, and I talked about it on the show, going into uh, Savannah, I think. Yeah, I remember. And it was like one of the most intense Well, that was approaches. another tropical weather system. Yeah, it was a tropical storm. Yeah. And it, that was a lot worse than what we experienced in uh, Sarasota. Again, we weren't really that close to the uh, to the hurricane at that point in Sarasota. But yeah, and then the same thing. Just literally five to ten minutes later, it's just a nice day there. <laughs> Dang it. Timing is everything. It is. It's, it really is. Um, so uh, I go back out uh, again next week on Monday through Thursday, a four-day trip. And uh, But... Between now and then, I get to do something fun tomorrow. I mentioned it on the last show. Uh, Peter Biondi, uh, the uh, airport chaplain and professor of aviation and alumnus of Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, invited me to the the homecoming, and I'm going to uh, jet myself down to Daytona Beach tomorrow morning. And uh, he's going to pick me up and give me a VIP tour, he said, of the uh, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, and then we're going to listen to a a speech or a talk by Greg Faith, and uh, then, you know, probably do some more hobnobbing and good eating and drinking, and then uh, I think they have some kind of a static display uh, Saturday morning, and then I'll head back to Atlanta. So just a quick overnight. fun. Yeah. What is a homecoming? It's when... You uh, come back to your school, your school home, wherever you graduated, and uh, you um, attend. They usually have some uh, some events and ceremonial stuff uh, to honor the people that went to this, attended the school in the past, and graduated. So, okay, so it's a, like a reunion. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in high schools, uh, homecoming, and in co- some colleges, if they have uh, football teams, uh, that's usually. Uh, centered like around a, the yeah like a rivalry game or something too yeah mm-hmm. where you'll go and attend the the football game or whatever kind of sport and uh, yeah and i was just uh, very honored that uh, peter uh, extended an invitation to me as to, to join him as his guest so that's gonna be great yeah i'm looking forward to that and uh, hopefully i'll be able to record some audio and uh, we'll be able to play that on the next show Perfect. all right and uh, let's see. And if anybody is interested, uh, next week I'll be in Huntsville at Dulles and Wichita, Kansas. At least that's what it says on paper right now. Well, Not even on paper, that. in digital form, I should say. Okay. With that, I think we should move on to the coffee fund. What do you think? Absolutely. All right. Here we go. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. So, that's Jeff Smith singing the Java Jive. And the reason why he's doing that is because I wanted him to. And also because we're going to talk about the coffee funding, the way you can join the coffee fund cadre, which is a great group of folks that uh, support us financially. And if you have the financial resources to do so and you want to join the coffee fund cadre, head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee and you'll find the couple of different ways that you can support us financially. 
So, since the last show, we have Silvio Nicolescu. Nicolescu uh, was uh, used the Classic Fund along with Jeff Moeller and Paul Mylink. That's M-E-I-L-I-N-K. That might be Meanlink, but Mylink, I'm thinking. So thank you guys for using the uh, Classic Fund via PayPal. Also, we have something on Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. And we have two new producers. Yay, Darren Hill and Logan Lynch. Thank you guys for joining the Coffee Fund Cadre. And again, if you want to do the same, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Stand by for news. Okay, the first item in our news folder. Yes. Oh, we all know what that means. Some bad passenger behavior. And we start off with F-16, Dutch F-16 fighter jets were scrambled to intercept KLM Flight 452 from Abu Dhabi to Amsterdam. And apparently a 29-year-old American man became aggressive after being asked by a purser to return to his seat, said Joanna Hellmans, a spokesperson for the gendarmerie. And this is from airlive.net, just so we know where this information is coming from. A scuffle broke out and the cabin crew, together with other passengers, managed to restrain the man, she told AFP, declining to name the airline or flight. A number of passengers were lightly wounded, including two passengers who were given black eyes. And uh, the plane was given special clearance to land immediately at Schiphol, with police police arresting the man shortly afterwards. Uh, Hellman said the man was examined at the airport and officers determined that he came across as disoriented. The man has been admitted to a psychiatric institution for observation, they say. Although on high alert, Dutch fighter jets, which are armed with air-to-air missiles, are only scrambled in highly unusual cases, the Dutch Air Force said on Saturday. So, better safe than sorry, I guess. But uh, there's only one reason for... Scrambling a fighter to escort a, an airliner in, isn't that the, the, you're concerned that uh, uh, the airliner might be uh, hijacked, taken over, control might yep. be removed from the pilots, and uh, it might be turned into a weapon, in which case you need a fighter there just to uh, you know, bring it down, I guess. And it could be, I guess, you know, as you say, um, possible terrorist incident where this might be something that's initiated to just be a distraction. Yeah, good and, point, uh, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we're taught about that sort of stuff. Yep. Hmm. So you always have to be... Uh, one of the things I do when I brief um, my flight attendant leader uh, before uh, when, when there's a new crew is that, you know, if we have to uh, an abort, abort a takeoff, 
it's very likely, and what we'll plan on doing is opening up the cockpit door so that I can talk to he or she directly uh, to see what's happening in the back of the airplane, you know, whether or not we need to uh, evacuate the airplane or whatever. And I said, I'll, you know, expect that that's what's going to happen unless we suspect something weird is going on back there. Like, for instance, we suspect that somebody is trying to cause some kind of a, uh, a distraction to gain access to the cockpit. So anyway. that's just sad and crazy. All those things you have to possible scenarios you have to think about these days, huh? It is. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, it's not like it's, uh, it's been unknown of for quite a few decades now. So I guess we kind of got used to it. Mm -hmm. It's just another one of those factors you have to have in the forefront of your mind whenever something unusual happens on the airplane. Exactly. Well, speaking of crazy and sad, a uh, 747-400 excurted, excur what? that's that not word? the right word, um, I didn't know had that. an excursion. So what is the Excursioned? actual, yeah, what, what, so okay. what do you think? What verb? Left the runway? Yeah, no, 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 Left no, using E-X-C-U-R. E an excursion? Yeah. I'm going for an excursion. But what if you wanted to ex I think you need another auxiliary the verb. Yeah. Liz says <laughs> okay. Let's just make it up. Yeah, okay. Exited I'm making up my new verb. I excurted. I excurted the runway, sir. <laughs> I think you need another auxiliary verb in there, too. It's just Do I? With your meaning. Well, yeah. I don't want to use another auxiliary verb. Well, then we'll just change English. Okay. It's fine. Take two. A 747, a Thai Airways 747, had a had an excursion in Thailand at the, how do you pronounce the name of that airport? Uh, Bangkok, uh, Suvarna, Bangkok International Airport. So, yeah, that's the safe way to do it. <laughs> Savarna Bumi. Savarna Bumi International Airport? I don't know. Try it, Steph. What do you think? Suvarna Bumi? <laughs> that's okay. a good one. You got the nut in there. Well done. I yeah. Think that's, that's very I good. I think I put an extra M in there, though. I like, though. I like the sound of it. Zuvarnabumi. Zuvarnabumi. Zuvar... No. Zuvarnabumi. Yeah. Zuvarnabumi. You know what? It, uh, this is a fun trick. It has nothing to do with aviation, but someone told me if you're faced with a word in another language that you're not sure how to pronounce because it's a lot of letters and kind of looks like alphabet soup, start at the end, break it down into pieces, working backwards, and it makes it much easier for you to not be so tongue-tied when you try to say it. Oh, oh, so Imubanravus. Cool. Uh, oh, that's no, actually no, pronouncing not, it backwards. Not backwards. <laughs> Just break it into pieces and work backwards to Umibanravasu. Oh, no, 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 but then you have to reverse it. You have to. You have to. <laughs> you guys know it. <laughs> well, anyway, getting back to aviation. Uh, the 747-400 suffered a runway excursion after landing on runway 19 right at Bangkok International. <laughs> there were no injuries. There's a couple of photos here of the uh, the big old jet um, past the paved surface and into the grass and mud. Yeah. Actually, it, that held it up pretty well um, for being not prepared, uh, not a prepared surface. And it looks like uh, they landed in a in heavy rain showers. And thunderstorms. So, I guess uh, yeah, just the kind forecast of sort of certainly off. had some pretty bad weather in there associated with it. But uh, yeah. I mean, th we've been 
in the industry, been working hard to try and prevent runway excursions because it is one of the most common form of accident now in our industry. And uh, yet still they happen. So despite all our efforts of emphasizing, you know, uh, you've got to do a, a proper uh, runway condition matrix calculation of your landing distance, and then you've got to factor it to make sure you've got a good buffer, and then you make sure that, you know, whatever you've selected on the aircraft or bring the aircraft to a halt matches the runway length, and it's a 12,000-foot runway. So I actually saw pictures of this, though. I'm not sure that the, the excursion occurred at the end of the runway. It kind of looked like it was midway down oh really that's what it looked like from one of the pictures i saw i'm not entirely certain on that so don't quote me for sure but it looks like we're we're gonna quote you yeah okay yeah yeah it's just midway so in which case stopping is not so important but uh you know well let's see what the uh aviation herald uh what simon says about this the wind wasn't too uh bad so if it was not a um grooved or porous friction overlay kind of a runway and it said uh you know and then you have heavy rain thrown in uh and you don't have a nice straight vector going down the runway i could see that happening um uh let's see uh simon's site uh does not say at which point it oh i i take that back you're right stuff there is a google a google yes we did it (laughs) 52 percent all right folks uh thanks for joining us today on episode 344 (laughs) we're gonna we're gonna quit while we're at uh or uh, so yeah it looks like um this is google earth and uh runway 19 if this is oriented with the top north it looks like they were about halfway down the runway left-hand turn off the prepared yeah. surface. Well, did they miss the turn off or something? It looks like that might be yeah. the case. There was a high speed and it uh, ended up uh, leaving the runway and or taxiway right at the point just past beyond where that high speed exit is. Oh, so now there, there's a case of someone trying to be a bit keen to get off the runway perhaps. I'm I'm guessing here. Yeah. And uh, missed the turn off or slid past the turn off. That certainly does seem plausible. Yeah. All right. Oh, here's a, here's a hint for players. Don't do that. Don't do that. That's our <laughs> official advice. Exactly. Especially when you've got more runway remaining and other exit options. Yes. A lot more runway, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, let's continue then. Uh, Jet Airways uh, flight, uh, 737-800, coming in to land at Indore. I'm not sure. Again, I like the accent that you put on it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's French place, is it? Yeah. yeah okay. In Indore, is that better? Sure. Yeah, uh, don't roll the R, because um, I don't I'd think the Indians indoor, roll their R's. I've never been there, so I don't know. Indore, India. 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 Indra India. Indoor 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 India. Well, anyway, this 737 Jet Airways was performing flight eight or three eighty three from Mumbai to Indore. They were on short final to Indore's runway two seven, about one nautical mile before touchdown 
at about 22.33 local time, so getting close to uh, midnight, when the approach lights, runway lights, and all airport lights disappeared. The crew initiated a go-around. Wait a minute, we need to play that, right? You can always go around If it don't look right It did not look right coming down. Go around. All right, so the uh, crew initiated said go around. The airport appeared again about 20 seconds later. The aircraft climbed to about 1,500 feet AGL position for another approach and landed safely on runway 27 about 15 minutes after the go around. Now, um, Simon, the uh, guy that runs the Aviation Herald, sometimes is gets really clever with the way he uh, makes the headlines for these incidents and accidents and such. His headline is Jet Airways 737-800 at Indore on October 1st, 2018. Airport disappeared without David Copperfield. <laughs> <laughs> very good. No, very, it was very uh, his face from the movie Airplane in the tower and pulls the plug. Oh, yeah, pulls the plug. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that, you think that may be what happened? Oh, I'm thinking either the power went out. Yeah. uh... So, yeah, I think that the the lights went off probably. I'm I'm sure that they didn't disappear because they were back again just a few minutes later. So, I mean, um, we've we've go to several airfields in the old days um, that used to have these kind of problems. Uh, And they're generally speaking airfields at countries that don't have a hugely uh, reliable infrastructure. And what is supposed to happen is if the local power source goes down and uh, takes out the runway lights, then the airport is supposed to have a near instantaneous uh, replacement uh, electrical source on site to uh, return power to these sort of things. So it's supposed to have a, uh, a faultless backup that clicks in very, very quickly and uh, recovers the lights. But uh, there was one airport we used to go to uh, in Nigeria that had a very unreliable um, backup system, if it ever worked. Uh, so we were only allowed to do daylight landings there because of this problem. Mm. Oh, man. I've definitely had it work where you um, are at small airfields where they have pilot control lighting. So you've got to click the the mic key seven times for bright lights or five times for medium intensity, um, where sometimes they just don't seem to work or want to come on. And you can hear it happening to other people, too, if you're ever flying at night and you hear a lot of mic clicks and then, again, the same thing. <laughs> so it's always nice when they work, though, which they usually do. Yeah, it is kind of disconcerting when they just all of a sudden disappear. Disappear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah. Excellent. Uh, so uh, you can't really tell. You've got to sort of set a clock when you first kick them off, uh, or turn them on, I should say, and then work out if you're going to be able to land in normally about 20 minutes, isn't it, they stay on for? Yeah, generally. I mean, it's a good deal of time. If you're close enough to see the airport, if you turn the lights on via pilot-controlled lighting, it should be on for the amount of time you need to land and taxi. Right. Yeah. Oh, on, when I was uh, out in Australia, the Air Force Base uh, for the F-18s that one of our closest uh, major diversions was an unmanned airport at Dubbo, and it had exactly this system. So I found it a little bit incongruous that you're landing a $100 million uh, F-18 brand new fighter at an airport that you have to click the buttons to get the, the lights on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but for any listeners who, who you know aren't familiar with this or aren't pilots, uh, basically at these 
uncontrolled airports after dark. Um, quite a few of them will have pilot controlled lighting. So when you're tuned into the um, common traffic advisory frequency, the CTAF, that will also control the lighting and it's controlled by a number of clicks of the microphone key. So. There you go. And just for fun, if we got uh, a, a boring Navex at night, we used to just go around the countryside and looking at our maps and every time we went past a, a little unmanned airfield, we just turn the lights on for fun. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now, it's not possible to turn them off though, right? I mean, it's fail-safe no, on. No, yeah. Yeah. It's fail-safe on. Yeah, that would, not be, that would not be funny. No, you turn you can, them on. You can, them. You can turn off. them, you know, yeah. if they're real bright, you can dim them. Ah, so instead right. of seven clicks, you can do five clicks. Five clicks or even three, three clicks, clicks, right? Some places. Yeah, in some cases, you can do yeah. three. Um, yeah, so as, uh, as you said, uh, so eloquently earlier, Nick, timing is everything. <laughs> yes, and in this case, Jet Airways, bad timing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could have been even worse and happened in the flare. That's really nasty when the runway disappears. <laughs> Just as you're about to try and put your wheels on so it. So I guess their timing actually was okay. <laughs> yeah. Go around. And or I guess even worse, when just as you're rolling out and you've still got like uh, 100 knots on and uh, committed to landing when all the lights go out then, you kind of, Mind you, with with the modern lighting we've got on the aircraft, you you're pretty uh, you know pretty well lit. I don't know. This is uh, this is a seven thirty seven. So what do they have? Candle power? <laughs> they they have lanterns that they light on this one to. This is a relatively new landing lighting. light. I think they probably have LED lights. LED lights. Oh, right, okay, yeah. right. So I mean, uh, once you get pretty close to the runway, the the amount of light the aircraft can generate is usually pretty impressive. Yeah, I did have one time going into a uh, small airport in eastern North Carolina where we could not get the pilot control lighting to work. It, we were doing it correctly. We double, triple checked. We were on the correct frequency. They just would not come on for whatever reason. And we really, you know, we could have gone to another airport nearby, I suppose. But there was relatively good um, lighting from the moon that evening. Uh, it was a full moon. Um, but then as we got down closer, we realized that at some point our um, landing light decided not to be working anymore either. So it was a little on the dark side, but with a couple of us on the airplane, we were able to spot and say, okay, it looks like you're about, you know, this many feet off the ground now and flare and it worked out great. So it I love it. You, what you really need, uh, and being a gadget lady, you need to get these straight away are some NVGs so that you don't have to worry about things. Night vision goggles. Ah, yes. yes. Thank you. Yeah. And you could clip on your head and then and you wouldn't need any lighting. See everything. But lighting would then become an embarrassment because they would flare. You would want to be everything dark. Mm -hmm. Well, going back to our earlier excursion of language, <laughs> I looked at the uh, looked up the etymology of excursion, and it is uh, from Latin "ex" meaning out, and "currere" c u r r e r e to run. Oh, good! You know your Latin. I don't know and, any Latin. Oh, you're a doctor. You have to know some. <laughs> And That's then true. there's ex right? I think I added a few <laughs> extra ones in there, which is to uh, run out. And uh, so basically the uh, the present uh, tense of the verb is excurred. No, I'm just making that part up. Uh, there's no D anywhere excurred. to be found. Sounds like, sounds like you're scurred. Excurred. Yeah. Okay. Well, I tried. Nice try. Where's the yeah, buzzer? Yeah. Where's the, uh, the buzzer? It's right here. And...
Uh-huh. Sad face. Okay. Um, moving on. Oh, guess what we had to play again. Oh, no. Really? I know. Yeah. I'm not kidding. So, uh, let's, let's head on down to Orlando, Florida. Orlando. Orlando, Florida. Frontier Airlines said a woman had to be es- escorted off a flight bound for Cleveland Tuesday night due to a squirrel. A what? Squirrel. Squirrel? Squirrel. What? Uh, Frontier said a passenger boarded flight 1612 in Orlando saying the squirrel was an emotional support animal. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the airline said the passenger noted in her reservation that she was bringing an, emo- an emotional support animal, but it was not indicated the animal was a squirrel. Frontier said, quote, rodents, including squirrels, are not allowed on its flights. <laughs> that must have been very hurtful for them to call her squirrel a rodent, but actually that's what it is. Uh, it's just a very pretty looking rodent. Uh, are the passenger, they huh? Are they, they are. Though? No, you don't yeah. think so? They, oh. they, got, they got little sharp pointy teeth. Yeah, they're rodents. <laughs> well, yeah. well if, they, if they keep their, their lips closed, they don't have lips <laughs> yes, probably. You, <laughs> you don't see their teeth. <laughs> No, sometimes sometimes squirrels are cute. I will give you that. Yeah, they have those puffy tails. You know, mm-hmm. oh, red squirrels that we get—they're pretty rare over here now because the American gray squirrel is almost completely done for them. But they're the prettiest things ever. I got little tufty ears and little bright red. And well, this little puffy, cute little rodent uh, owner, the passenger was advised of the policy and asked to get off the plane. But no, 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 no. Airline said when she refused to get off the airplane. Orlando police were called and requested everyone to be deplaned so that they could deal with the passenger. Police eventually escorted her off the plane and took her to the main terminal. The flight was set to be on its way to Cleveland later Tuesday evening. I think it was a two-hour delay. Two-hour delay, yeah. Mm. There, I've seen some interviews with this lady, some video interviews. She's a, um, she's a piece of work. That much. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. It wasn't a surprise then after no. seeing the interviews? No, not really. Yeah. Because yeah. um, um, listeners may not know why rodents are such a problem on aircraft. And uh, the problem is that they chew things mm-hmm. and they love chewing things. And if your pet squirrel, which uh, is not going to be particularly well trained, I suspect, I don't know, perhaps this squirrel did tricks, but um, if it escapes and gets uh, in amongst the wiring, uh, it can do a hell of a lot of damage with those little rodent teeth. Uh, and. <laughs> The rodents seem to have watched the video, folks. Yeah, if you're just listening to the audio, please go watch Nick's imitation of what little rodent teeth do. (laughs) Using his fingers. So, um, yeah, they uh, they get it, and there seems to be some attraction to the insulation around wires. And mice are the same rats. uh, Mice and rats. Squirrels, yeah, they'll they'll do. My brother had an incident in his car where they were there was a rodent chewing wire. Yeah, why do they they chew electric wires? They love it. it. They they just love the flavor, or perhaps it's electrical (laughs) activity in it, but they chew and chew and chew and if there's enough voltage of course that'll be the last thing they do but on board an aircraft you know they don't have huge voltages and once you get rid of the insulation there's always the chance you're going to short circuit and things will go wrong and i've had uh, mice in the floor um, you know between the two upstairs and downstairs here that have chewed through my uh, alarm insulation and set the alarm system mad um, so, you know, that's just, that's just a nightmare. And you, you cannot fly an airplane that's got a, a rodent loose in it. You've just got to, you've got to exterminate it or 
catch it or something. So if it had got loose uh, inside the aircraft, that would have been the aircraft grounded until they managed to find it. But here's the real public service announcement. If you're on an aircraft, if you've boarded an aircraft and uh, the airline asks you to get off for any reason, you should probably just go ahead and comply because the next step is you're going to be forcibly removed from that aircraft and talking to police. Yeah, absolutely. Another public service announcement. You're welcome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. That's what we're uh, agreeing. Ah, okay. Um, continuing on. Soyuz rocket launch failure forces emergency landing for the U.S. Russian Space Station crew. And that was actually earlier today, Thursday. Uh, a Russian Soyuz rocket uh, carrying a new U.S. Russian crew to the International Space Station failed during its ascent Thursday, October 11th, sending its crew capsule falling back toward Earth in a ballistic re-entry, NASA officials said. A search and rescue team has reached the landing site. Both crew members are in good condition and have left the Soyuz capsule as of 6.10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. NASA spokesperson Brandy Dean said during live television commentary, Russian space agency Roscosmos has released photographs of both astronauts being checked over after their abrupt landing. The Soyuz rocket and its Soyuz MS-10 space capsule lifted off from the Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan at about 4.47 a.m. Uh, our eastern time with NASA astronaut Nick Haig and cosmo cosmonaut Alexei, Alexei Ovshinin uh, aboard. The pair were due to join the three-person Expedition 57 crew already aboard the International Space Station. But something went wrong minutes after liftoff, sending the Soyuz capsule into a ballistic re-entry. Um, I have a link here. I did a little bit of searching. Uh, I don't believe this article had the video, but uh, there's a YouTube video of the, uh, there's a camera mounted inside of the uh, capsule showing the crew. And the moment that things go wrong, and apparently the, uh, uh, the one of the, the main booster uh, was supposed to separate at that point in the uh, launch, and it didn't. And because of that, they knew that the uh, crew was, well, the whole mission was in danger. And so that initiated the sequence for the uh, emergency. Ballistic reentry, I think, or something. Yeah. Uh, so basically, um, it's kind of like, um, I, I tried to find some information about exactly what happens there, but apparently there's a, like a rocket on the on the escape tower uh, that's part of the the assembly where the capsule is, and it uh, fires off, and then it separates itself from the the main rocket, and then uh, the uh, capsule is by itself, and then a couple of parachutes come up, um, and they're not fully inflated at that point. They're more streamlined, I guess, because you probably uh, can't have fully uh, enveloped uh, parachutes. Up, up at a super high altitude, or maybe just the compressibility of air, or the fact that there are very few air molecule, molecules up there that there's really nothing to fully open up the uh, the parachutes. I'm not probably sure. Probably getting a bit fast for a full. Yeah, that might be too. Well. They might just shred them. So it's probably just something that, that acts as something to add drag to try to slow the thing down, and then as it gets into the richer, uh, thicker atmosphere, then probably it's safe to. Fully, I'm not sure exactly how that works, but yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. But it and then it lands 
basically, you know, uh, with the parachutes and directly. And I would imagine that's probably not a comfortable uh, landing when it hits the ground. But um, anyway, apparently they're safe. But the uh, the point I was making about the camera inside showing the crew, you could see that point that something went wrong, and you could kind of you can almost see the the look on one of the uh, astronauts face uh, that well you know like what's going on and then the thing is just violently shaking uh, I think they're both holding look like tablet devices and they're just getting it's just really interesting did you guys have a chance to look at that no I didn't that realize there no. was that out there so I should go and have a look after the show yeah I mean this happened today this is actually the first I've seen this news article yeah so it's it's really interesting and uh, they uh, I'm sure that was quite um, an exciting few moments for them when that happened well i'm glad the uh, emergency system worked properly uh, because yeah. it's, it's pretty uncommon i know they don't have a lot of backup systems on a, a space rocket because you know there's not a lot of room uh for you know multiple um rocket devices etc so you need considerations and all of that yeah you need one major failure and that's it you've just got to abandon it i'm so delighted that the escape system worked properly I think one of the articles I was looking at um, talking about this escape system, uh, the G forces that they experienced during that whole thing is like about seven G's. I don't know for how long that so would few uh, G's. I mean, definitely make a, a dif difference or a, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So we have that. Yes. You know, this is not the, uh, you know, astronaut pilot guy or space astronaut pilot guy, guy. <laughs> show, <laughs> but it's, you know, somewhat related to uh, yes, aviation. It flies, does not being shot into the air. Yeah. yeah, kind of flies. Yeah. Well, this next one definitely is related to flying, and it involves a an airplane that has extremely long range. In this case, it's uh, an Airbus A three fifty dash nine hundred ULR. Uh, which uh, I guess is ultra long range. I'm guessing. I thought Nick was like, "That's exactly like, right." Like yep. saying "woo," yeah. but then he was just yawning. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm thinking, why do we even worry about the? I mean, like, that's a yawner to me. So uh, what's interesting about an airplane flying 19 hours nonstop from Singapore to New York? That sounds, sounds painful like to pure me. Pure pain. <laughs> <I know. laughs> sounds like yeah, pressure sores yeah. waiting to happen and blood clots. But I guess uh, it's got to be quicker than taking a stop en route because, uh, you know, you can do it all in one go, you know, and they're going from Singapore to New York. Isn't that right with this one? Yep. So. And, uh, you correct. know, if, okay. if you're going to do that and, and have a, a refuel stop on route, you're going to add an hour, perhaps two hours to the journey. Well, now you've made it 21 hours. Better to just stay nice and comfortable and do it all in one go. But we do have to worry about, uh, what, deep vein thrombosis, right? Yes, uh, DVTs, that's why I said blood clots. Well, it's still going to be airborne for the same length of time, but I guess you yeah. have a couple of hours where you can walk around the terminal, uh, but you can usually take a stroll up and down the airplane. And I lied, want. I think this flight is actually going to Newark, is that correct? Singapore? Yeah. Newark? Okay, sorry, I said JFK, that was incorrect. No, New York, I think I say. Well, it says New York, and then down at the bottom it says Newark. They referenced a couple of New, uh, New York area yeah, airports. I guess they're considering Newark to be one of the three big yeah. New, uh, New York airports. Yeah, I mean, it just depends on, um, I guess it just depends on personal preference and how you like to travel. When flights are, when travel time is that long, I actually don't mind to stop somewhere to walk around, get some food that isn't, you know, on the airplane. I don't Good know. point. It's Good a, point. 
it, for me, it just breaks it up a little bit better. For me, I worry because every time the airplane stops, I can get bumped. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I don't have that same concern usually. No, you don't. Some of us have to pay <laughs> our tickets to travel places. Exactly right. So it, I, I, it's a pretty. Uh, I, I took a look at the track, whether it was just a, uh, I don't know, some amateur effort, but it looked like it was fairly uh, high into the polar region uh, to get from Singapore down to uh, New York. Certainly a long way north. So that'd probably be the best great circle. Um, interesting though. I, uh, I, it's a blue ribbon thing, isn't it? These airlines love to boast that they've got the longest scheduled flight going. And I, well, it seems like every couple of months. You know, there's a new one that tops the yeah. old one, or someone abandons one because it's no really. Does anyone want to fly these super? Yeah, and I do wonder trips? how anyone outside the hierarchy of the airline is the least bit interested, quite honestly, as to who's got the longest. Well, time. I think it makes it's press, and whether people are actually flying that air, that particular route or not, it's press for the the airline itself. So yeah. I think that probably has yeah. a little bit of a bump for them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a nice demonstration of the capability of the A350, though, although the passenger load isn't vast, is it? No, 161 business class and premium economy seats and no economy class seats. So that's an interesting go. market to yeah. target as well. Mm. We'll see how long it lasts. I think we have our doubts about it a little bit. They're offering yep. low initial fares on its U.S. nonstop routes, including as little as 1,438 Singapore dollar, which is 1,040 um, U.S. dollars. That's not bad. Uh, round trip well, that's not for, bad for business class. Uh, our premium economy for that. Yeah, well, still. But that's their initial fares. They're going to jack them up. I guess I'm I sure. should go to Singapore now. Yes. Get them while they're hot. That's right. All right. Oh, I guess it's now time for the next segment of our show. We call it our feedback segment. Captain, incoming message. And before we get on with the feedback, we'd just like to uh, say to everybody that uh, we really do appreciate your feedback. Thank you for sending it in several different ways for you to do it. You can send it directly via email to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. You can use the uh, form on the website, airlinepilotguy.com. Uh, if you have one of our apps, you can. there's a handy-dandy way to uh, send us feedback through that. And uh, how else? We have SpeakPipe, which we love. We love your audio feedback. Uh, SpeakPipe, SpeakPipe is one way to do it, and that can be found on the website. And uh, you can even record something using your smartphone or whatever type of recording device and email that as an attachment to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. Now, the reason why I'm kind of taking a moment to talk about this is that uh, what we really want from you as far as feedback is concerned is uh, for you, if you have a question about something um, or not just sending us a link to a, a news item, which we do appreciate, it's just not technically feedback, but that does, you know, bring our attention to certain things that we might want to talk about in the news segment. But as far as feedback, pure feedback is concerned, uh, we really like to hear personal stories. Um, uh, we like to uh, hear your voice uh, with audio feedback, and we'd love to answer your questions. Yeah, you've got all these great minds on the show, not including mine, of course, because it's full of cotton wool, but we've got Dr. Steph, who's our GA expert. 
and uh, covers all sorts of uh, things with uh, great skill. I'm very happy to talk about military and uh, long-haul stuff and European flights, Airbus. And Jeff, of course, is our, is our fantastically experienced American uh, man who uh, has got a wealth of experience. And, of course, Dana is one of those marvelous guys who uh, has come into the industry through quite a difficult path, and he uh, often has great advice for people who are looking to come into the airline industry and particularly those who are sort of self-improving. So you've got all this uh, experience we love to be able to quack about uh, all sorts of things. So we'd love to get more feedback. Yeah, so we are encouraging you. We, uh, as I said, love to hear from you and hear your questions and your personal experiences like this, especially love the ones where we hear about people that have uh, been listeners of our show for quite some time and decided to kind of just go for it and try to learn how to fly and get all the uh, required certificates and licenses and uh, are actually out there living their dream. Uh, those are really special to us. Um, and uh, any kind of an experience you might have that you want to sh might want to share with us, that's always fun for the community to uh, listen to. Absolutely. I think you guys covered that well. Well, thanks. Yeah. Appreciate it. Um, oh, and speaking of um, Dana, um, didn't mention it at the beginning of the show, but uh, he uh, had planned to make it today, but uh, unforeseen circumstances required his attention, and uh, he couldn't make it uh, with us today again. So hopefully we'll cross our fingers that he'll be able to join us on the next show. We, again, miss you, Dana. Hope everything is okay. Um, okay. Let's continue with the show. This first item uh, in our feedback folder is basically a link to a final report, an update on a serious incident, a Fokker 50 or a Fokker 50 on uh, April 21st, 2016, the second day of the aviation exhibition Aero Friedrichshafen. Friedrichshafen? Schaffen? Friedrichshafen? Friedrichshafen? There we go. We'd get it eventually. The pilot of the piston engine Piper PA28RT slash or dash 201T. Registration Oscar Kilo Echo Lima Lima with three passengers on board made initial contact at 8.03.27 UTC with the Friedrichshafen Aerodrome, which is Echo Delta uh, November Yankee Aerodrome control on frequency 120.075 megahertz for landing pilot notified the air traffic controller that he had passed Kempton and was going to descend to 4,000 feet QNH at the aerodrome control of the airport two air traffic controllers workstations were allotted with the descriptions VFR pickup respectively PL main after initial contact the pilot of the Piper was instructed by the VFR pickup controller to fly directly towards the waypoint Oscar, uh, northwest of the airport, thereby remaining outside of the control zone, the CTR. Roughly four minutes later, the crew of the Fokker 50 with flight plan call sign VLM-22 Tango X-ray and 33 passengers on board made initial contact with the radar executive air traffic controller, the RE air traffic controller, of the approach control, uh, the later the latter then issued a heading and a, a descent clearance with the intention of guiding the airplane via a right. Oh wait a minute, did I say something about a Piper? So what am I doing here? 
there's a Piper now and there's a Fokker 50. Sounds like there's two aircraft involved. I don't yeah. remember this incident or if I don't either. about it. I'm not sure we did because mm. it's not. Not it's ringing not, any, any bells here. Nope. For me. No, not. Uh, no. Well. But now, I'm, now my interest is peaked. Something just rang a bell, but it wasn't my memory. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's uh, pick up where I left off, if I can find where I left off. Um, so four minutes later, the crew of the uh, Fokker 50 with flight plan call sign. I said that before. Um, so the latter was issued a heading and a descent clearance with the intention of guiding the uh, Fokker 50 via right-hand base towards a waypoint situated on the extended center line of runway 24 and approximately 11 nautical miles from the threshold for an instrument approach. When the Piper was roughly 20 nautical miles east of the airport at an altitude of 4,000 feet, the pilot was cleared by the VFR pickup aerodrome controller to join the final approach leg of runway 24. Now, some of this uh, this information here is like very unfamiliar to me. I don't, I've never heard the term VFR pickup, uh, but it must be a way for them to integrate VFR traffic with IFR traffic, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's what I was gathering from it. I'm not familiar with it either, but I guess it's uh, that way you have uh, the interesting thing though is that you have, it sounds like two different controllers that aren't so you know, we talk a lot about painting that mental picture of what's going on with all the traffic in the area. In this case, you have VFR traffic and instrument traffic that's separated and they're not listening to each other as far as I can tell. So I think they're on different frequencies. Uh, sounds like it. The fright, the fright clue. The flight crew of flight VLM-22 Tango X-ray was cleared by the RE air traffic controller to descend to 5,000 feet. Half a minute later, they were cleared to turn to a heading of 150 degrees for the base leg, coupled with a clearance to descend to 4,000 feet. Uh-oh, that's the same altitude, by the way. The Piper is flying. Uh, after having been transferred to the PL main air traffic controller, the pilot of the Piper called on frequency 134.3 on long final to runway 24. The PL main aerodrome controller instructed the pilot uh, the Piper to turn right towards the waypoint Oscar and to remain outside of the CTR. Uh, let's see the ground base based short-term conflict alert STCA generated an alarm between the two airplanes followed 10 seconds later by a traffic information provided to the flight crew of the Fokker 50 by the RE air traffic controller concerning an unknown VFR traffic. He then provided a second traffic information um, about a few seconds later, despite good vi visual meteorological conditions, the visibility through the flight deck windows of uh, the Fokker was impaired by the reflection and position of the sun, which is why the flight crew could only identify and follow the intruding traffic at the same altitude with the information displayed by their traffic alert and collision avoidance system, their TCAS system. No, TCAS, TCAS system. <laughs> The commander subsequently decided to initiate an avoidance maneuver by turning 90 degrees to the right. At approximately the same time, following the traffic information, the pilot of the Piper reported that he had visual contact with the Fokker. During the avoidance maneuver, the two aircraft crossed at an altitude of approximately 4,000 feet. Uh, the closest point of approach was one half mile, nautical mile horizontally, and 100 feet vertically. That was close. Both aircraft continued their approach without further events. 
And so this uh, final report uh, lays out the um, the uh, final probable cause. Uh, the serious incident is attributable to a dangerous convergence of two aircraft flying on a converging course in airspace class E during an aviation exhi- exhibition. Oh, I didn't catch that part. I guess they did say that at the beginning. During which time the commercial aircraft flying under instrument flight rules was in contact with approach control, while the light aircraft flying under visual flight rules was in radio contact with the aerodrome control. So basically one was on approach and one was on tower. The dangerous convergence arose from the concurrence of the following factors in chronological order. The operational concept consisting of simultaneous approaches of traffic under visual and instrument flight rules during the trade fair entailed systemic risks. The pilots of both aircraft were not in radio contact with the same air traffic control unit. Uh, The traffic guidance with the aerodrome control service concerning the light aircraft approaching under visual flight rules was coordinated inadequately. The traffic alert and collision avoidance system on board the commercial aircraft did not generate a resolution advisory due to a lateral avoidance maneuver. And the traffic information provided by the aerodrome control to the pilot of the light aircraft was given too late. Pilots of both aircraft only acquired a late visual contact of each other. So... There you go. There's the final report of this incident in Germany. Comments? Yeah. yeah. Oh, go ahead, Nick. It's not uncommon, uh, although it's um, it's often in a place where you've got someone trying to do an instrument approach and there's VFR traffic around. What the circumstances for this are, this in uh, our company is the most common form of TCAS uh, resolution advisories when we're actually doing uh, a fully instrument approach uh, into a major airport and there's some bug smasher but bimbling around who gets so close that uh, our TCAS goes off. Uh, now this has happened in Germany, but um, it you know happens in a lot of countries and I'm not going to point the finger too hard, but... Uh, United States being one of our major destinations is one of the major places that we get a lot of these. We have a lot of VFR traffic. Yeah, yeah I'm surprised that you, you have that many, um, you know, TCAS resolution advisories for that reason, though. I think we do yeah. a reasonable job of uh, making sure people are talking to the same controllers, um, especially well, at, at large airports, so class Bravo airports, um, there shouldn't really be anyone, there should not, in fact, be anyone flying around in there in a small general aviation aircraft, not talking to a controller or um, without them knowing exactly where they are at all times. Well, sadly, a lot of our instrument patterns are flown outside of the um, class Bravo airspace. So uh, they they do venture into, um, you know, airspace that anyone can bimble around in. And uh, whilst we're being controlled, uh, the other person wouldn't necessarily be doing that. Interestingly, in my own experience, I think every RA that I've been issued has been another commercial air, air, um, airplane. Oh, really? Yeah. Because really the way, that, you know, the way the airspace is designed for large airports in the United States should include the um, instrument approaches for the major, for the runways at the airport. Yeah, we get we got warnings for Newark and Washington. Just two off the top of my head, where they both state that uh, 
the instrument pattern will take you out of uh, controlled airspace. So, you know, you've got to be extra aware. So even though you're being controlled and the controller is supposed to be keeping an eye on people that are around there, it's, uh, you know, you've got to have your eyes out in the stalks. And, of course, you can be in clouds, so it doesn't necessarily help. Yep. Keep your eyes on a swivel or whatever the head on terminology a is. Yeah. Keep your that head on too. a swivel. Yeah. Actually, both of them sound kind of kind of weird and creepy, but it sounds better to have your head on a swivel than a, your eyeball. <laughs> Although we are getting close to Halloween, so going to see a lot more of those scary. eyeballs on swivels. Um, anything else to add on that one? No, I think, you know, the biggest thing for me is that they're not talking to the same controller because I yeah. think if they were talking to the same controller, the chance of them ending up um, in almost the exact same location would be much less likely. I agree. And they would have had better awareness awareness of the other aircraft being there in the first place. And that one controller would have would been know, aware yeah. that there are two. But even, <laughs> you know, even if for some reason, you know, that whole lined up in the Swiss cheese, there's still another potential block there if the pilots are painting a good mental picture of where other traffic is or might be in relation to them. Yep. All right. Uh, I guess we can continue with the second item in the folder. Uh, Delta partners with CarePod to improve pet travel. After a number of recent issues with pets being transported on aircraft, Delta looks to a new partnership to improve conditions. Delta Cargo announced on Tuesday it's partnering with a pet technology startup in an effort to innovate safety and care for pets traveling on flights. The carrier said it signed an exclusive long-term partnership with CarePod, which will help it carry and monitor pets throughout the network and provide customers with updates in real time. This follows Delta's introduction of a staff veterinarian who will be tasked with reviewing policies and procedures to ensure safe and comfortable travel for pets. And uh, let's see, this quote is from Sean Cole, vice president of Delta Cargo. Uh, Demand for pet shipments is strong, and we are always looking for ways to create a best in-class travel experience for pets and their owners. Working with a startup like CarePod allows Delta with flexibility to enhance our service in new and innovative ways. We are able to think big, start small, and learn fast to solve specific customer needs. Delta came under fire earlier this year after multiple mishaps involving pets traveling with the airline. An eight-year-old Pomeranian named Arejando died in June during a trip from Phoenix to Newark, New Jersey. In March, the airline flew an eight-week-old puppy to the wrong city. Delta reported two two deaths out of the approximately 57,500 pets it transported in 2017. Uh, The Atlanta-based air carrier has temperature-controlled holding areas and vehicles and overnight kenneling services, as well as a real-time GPS tracking for pet transports. Its new cargo control center at its Atlanta hub gives the airline 24-7-365 visibility to, into all shipments, including pets. Uh, CarePod offers German-engineered smart travel pods and uses cloud-based software and real-time tracking, which allows its customers, the airlines, to keep closer tabs on pets. It says the biggest risks for pets traveling by air are heat, stress, and inconsistent care. Yeah, that sounds all very nice. It should hopefully relieve some of the pressure on uh, trying to get, uh, in inverted commas, I'm doing air quotes here, um, 
support animals uh, on board because people are concerned that their pets, when they fly, won't get good enough treatment. When you've got a specialist service like this, hopefully it'll um, alleviate some of those concerns and they'll be more likely to be willing to consign their their beloved animals to the cargo hold. I will say, though, um, this is just my own personal opinion here, too. Unless you're moving your pet a significant distance and are not planning on driving any portion of that, say, between countries across large bodies of water, if you're just going on vacation, I don't really think you need to be flying your pet to your vacation destination. That's just my personal, uh, you know, keep your pet safe. They don't need to be on vacation with you. They'll have a nice vacation with friends, family, or at a pet, you know, care facility while you're away. How about taking it to UPS or FedEx, boxing it up, punching a few holes in the box, and just shipping it? Careful how you punch those holes in the box. Make sure your pet's <laughs> not inside when you're punch making the, the holes. holes first, then insert pet. Another PSA. Enough stamps on. <laughs> yeah, make sure you get the postage right. You don't want, yeah, to, just, you, uh, you don't want it to be shoveled to one side. Postage. Yeah. Yep. Well, hey, um, main man Micah in our chat room uh, has joined the chat room. Hello, Mike. Micah. Hi, Micah. He said, uh, by the way, I've been invited to be on uh, WBZ Radio tonight to talk about the emotional support squirrel. Oh, Good luck, Micah. Yeah, have fun with that. Okay, don't forget <laughs> to do the little, little teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, I think the, the show Micah is doing is just pure radio, so... <laughs> Oh, really? Um, yeah, but he can do that with the, uh, whoever the host is of the show. He can do it to him and yeah, not scare yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> I worry about our, our poor YouTube viewers being traumatized by Nick's impression of the squirrel. <laughs> <sighs> we have fun. All right. Squirrel impersonations. Free of charge. Yes. Yep. Only on this um, show. Here's an update to an accident, a trans Maldivian DHC-6 at Malay on the 27th of May, 2017. That's when the accident occurred. It tipped over on water landing. Uh, it was a trans Maldivian de Havilland DHC-6-300 on floats. Registration 8 Quebec Tango Mike Victor performing a flight from Rangali Island to Malay in the Maldives with nine passengers and three crew, landed on Mali's seaplane port at 8.33 local time, but tipped over to the left and came to a stop partly submerged with the nose and left wing tip below the wing surface, or water surface. The 12 occupants were taken to a hospital as a precaution and discharged without injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. Maldives AICC have opened um, an investigation into the occurrence, the AICC reported the aircraft tipped over on landing and apparently, let's see, in a preliminary report, we should probably not go over the preliminary report. Let's uh, kind of fast forward here to the newest information since this is the, well, it's not the final report, it's just an update. Hmm. Okay, according to the flight crew, no abnormal abnormalities were observed throughout the flight from the takeoff at Rangali to approach for landing at Vilana International Airport and until the first touchdown the flight was uneventful the approach to land was normal while landing the left float touched the water first then the aircraft bounced and ballooned then landed on the left float for a second time and bounced again 
Then the aircraft was banking excessively to the right, digging the right wingtip into the water, making the aircraft veer to the right. Then the aircraft crashed on water, banking to the left with left float digging into water. Uh, the AICC analyzed examinations and tests carried out on the wreckage revealed no evidence of any technical defects which could have contributed to the accident. According to the pilot in command, immediately the aircraft bounced after the first impact with the water. Uh, the PIC told the co-pilot he was taking control and called for a go-around, requesting 10 degrees flap and added full power. The pilot in command tried to lower the nose and get the wings level with the objective to regain airspeed and directional control to fly the aircraft out of the situation. The pilot in command was unaware that the aircraft right wing tip dipped into the water as the aircraft veered to the right after the unexpected bounce. According to the co-pilot, when the aircraft impacted the water, the pilot in command called for change of control and the control was handed over. The co-pilot neither heard the pilot in command's call for 10 degrees flap nor took any actions to change the flap settings. During the investigation, it was confirmed that the flaps were at full down position. Proper procedures for the go-around were not followed, which is indicative of CRM breakdown. So apparently uh, they go on to say that had the flaps been retracted, they most likely would have been able to uh, have a successful go-around and wouldn't have dipped the right wingtip into the water. Um, and it must have been one of those things where the co-pilot had a little startle factor going on and wasn't sure what to do, and the captain took over, and maybe they were somewhat paralyzed and didn't hear nor take proper action. Well, yeah, I think if they weren't, uh, you know, working well as a team there in that moment, you know, you put all the workload on one person, and that's just not how it's how you're trained to do it. Steph, you're uh, you're the only flute playing qualifying mm -hmm. person. Yeah, how hard is it to do? Well, I mean, it, I guess it just depends on the the training that you get. But really, it's not difficult to, um, especially landing on. I forget what they said. Did they say what the water condition was? Because that's. Um, I don't know if they did. No, I don't think they did either. You know, when you have a little bit of, um, you don't want the smart the. The, some of the hardest landings to do are smooth surface, glassy water, because it's hard to see and judge what your actual uh, height above the water is. So that can make it a little bit trickier if it's dead calm. Um, when you have a little bit of um, texture to the water, so when there's a little bit of wind conditions and things like that, you can see it a lot easier and judge your height above the water for flare and landing. But other than that, it's just, it's very much like a, a normal touchdown in a lot of cases. Well, there's a Picture at the bottom there, it, it, uh, the Maldives is obviously an island in the ocean, so I don't think it's on an inland uh, water. And it looks like no. it's it's ripply. Yeah, those look like reasonable no conditions. Um, inside a bay or uh, somewhere. Yeah. So. yeah, I was just curious. And uh, you're quite right, Jeff. I think uh, that's exactly what happened. I think uh, the uh, having made a, a mistake, uh, the co-pilot was less likely to have really been in control of um, his actions for a short while and of course we all know that when you're under stress your hearing is one of the first senses to kind of be overridden um, uh, but uh, I was just uh, I was just looking at there saying proper procedures for the go-around were not followed which is indicative of a CRM breakdown now that sounds like just rubbish <laughs> I'm sorry yeah that didn't ring true with me either no 
I mean, CRM, that's something, I mean, really, honestly, no, it's a procedure breakdown yeah. and mm -hmm. uh, by one of the pilots, by the sounds of it. Uh, to call it CRM, I think, is, is an, uh, you know, complete. And perhaps if the captain who took over control of the aircraft, even though he called out for the flaps to go to 10, had just quickly glanced down to make sure that that actually took place, perhaps yeah, probably. it would have been a successful. I, I'm curious to know how important it was on that particular aircraft for, to get the flaps for, to 10, because uh, yeah, I, I think I it's very know. important. Is it? All right, okay. Well, yeah. it was important in the um, for the go-around, correct? That was what. Yes. Um, let's see. The aircraft manual, flight manual, the AFM states, warning, with flaps fully extended at 37.5, any pitch attitude in the go-around maneuver greater than zero degrees may cause a rapid decrease in airspeed and possible stall. Ah. Yeah. So that's okay. where it was more important. Yeah. In that case, yep. Vital that that FO got the flap in the right position. And if the yep. skipper, if he realizes the skipper's doing a go-around, he should be just doing it anyway. Yeah. Be ready for it. No, I think you're right. Startle factor plus, you know, that element of, oh, God, I've just screwed up here. What's going to happen now? Right. Um, yeah. So it's I think the DHC-6 is a uh, is a beaver, right? Sure, it's not a squirrel. I think it's a beaver. <laughs> nice beaver. <laughs> Thank you. I just had it stuffed. <laughs> Thanks to the chat room for that idea. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Continuing on. That was from the movie Airplane, and you have to see the video to understand the uh, context of that audio. Yes. Yes, because it involves taxidermy as well. Yes. Uh, item four, Jonathan. Dear Captain, Jeff, and crew, just browsing one of my favorite blogs tonight and came across this crazy collection of aviation videos. What a show! He's not talking about our show, unfortunately. He's talking about the uh, show, the, the videos on this website, I believe. You have to play the audio from some of these clips on APG and, of course, drop the links in the show notes. Look, he's telling us what to do. Hey, Very active producer. Is he trying yeah, to produce a Liz out of a job? <laughs> I think so. No, I think it's it's probably a good idea. Tell us exactly what you'd like us to do with it your... It definitely is a good idea. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, the first batch of videos are my favorites, all from the River Fire Air Show in Brisbane, Australia. First, you see an EA-18 growler doing low and fast passes. Then you see a C-17 doing things I didn't think a C-17 could do. Incredible. Given that it's in Oz, I wondered if Captain Nick had ever visit, visited or even flown in Riverfire. Uh, no, have you? I, I, I don't even recall. It might may have been may have existed when I was out there, but I'm talking pre 1990. So uh, I, no, I don't think so. I, I certainly never went there. No. So I went to the link that Jonathan provided. And I have to say, he is right. These are some pretty awesome videos. I don't know if you you all had a chance to uh, to look at some of them. Yes, the proximity to the high rises that uh, you know, all the big uh, tower blocks of flats and things. That is one of the most impressive things. I agree. And, and let me just play a little bit because he did ask me to play some of the uh, videos on the show. So here's a growler. That's a little bit of reheat from the uh, EA-18G growler. Here's another one. You can hear the crowd um, expressing its approval. 
or fear. Again, right on this river, here comes this airplane. Splosh. Yep. Bing. Um, well, you know what? I thought when I watched it at first that there was much more crowd reaction. That was not impressive at all. Um, what is impressive is a link to a video of this same low and fast flyby on the river below the level of the high-rise buildings uh, from within the airplane itself, a, and it's one of these special 360-degree cameras. And it's really cool to see the perspective from the airplane itself, and it's not quite as noisy as it was outside as this thing went by in full afterburner. Uh, but it is, uh, but you can tell when he's putting it into uh, reheat slash afterburner, and when he's taking it out. And uh, also, if you you know pan the camera around, you can see the when the uh, airplane is pulling some high G's because you can see some of the uh, the vapor coming off the uh, leading edge of the wing root. Uh, pretty pretty impressive. And then for our heavy people, and I'm not talking about your physical stature. I'm talking about Heavy airplanes, the C-17. By the way, isn't today the day that uh, uh, Captain Rick is picnic? Uh, he's doing the the mock loop. Did he do that, that today ago. or yesterday? Yeah. Yesterday, huh? the day before. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's over there in the. Is that Wales? The, uh, Wales. the mock loop. Yes, because yeah. it has the the. I can't pronounce the actual Welsh. Yeah, that. That. Uh, well, anyway, the uh, the Australian uh, Royal Royal Australian. Air Force uh, C-17 did a fly past as well. Now, you know, not quite as fast and uh, loud as the uh, EA-18 Growler, but it was impressive in its own way, this big airplane. In fact, one of the videos actually shows it from the perspective of one of the higher floors, uh, the shot from the window of one of these higher floors, and you're, the, you're looking down on the C-17 as it's flying by on the river. And that's uh, pretty impressive as well. Now, I don't think it has anything to do with River Fire in Brisbane. But if you scroll all the way almost to the end of these videos on, by the way, this is uh, from the site thedrive.com, the war zone. Uh, there is a, there's a, did you see the video of the Ukraine um, yep. Air Force SU-24? <laughs> now that, was that is low. In fact, the person taking the video had to actually hit the deck to avoid getting hit by this fighter. Duck. <laughs> yeah. It is. It, let me see if we can hear the. You're not going to be able to tell from the audio, but it it is. They're speaking. Russian. Is it Ukrainian? Ukrainian. Is there, oh, that's in Ukraine. Oh, it's in Ukraine. Can we translate, please? Oh, here's coming. That's coming. No, watch out. <laughs> Oh my Ouch. gosh! <laughs> you really—you have to watch this. It's—it's uh, it's amazing it's how insane, low that airplane it was. Insane. insane. It, was, it was not safe. Ah. <laughs> oh, anyway, so uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Jonathan, for sending us that link. That was definitely entertaining. Yep, it was practicing definitely. flying in ground effect. Yeah, it looked to be about. As Jonathan says, looks like about six feet off the ground. Yeah. We talked about ground <laughs> effect a couple episodes back. Good example. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I'm six foot two, so it would have been a haircut. Duck, Nick. Duck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you. All right. Hey, before Um, we move on, can we go back? um, The last piece of feedback we just did about the um, DHC6 in the Maldives, that's actually a twin otter. The beaver is the DHC2. So I just correcting our, uh, and I should know that because I jump out of the twin otter. I just yeah, never write it that way in my logbook. I just write twin otter. It's so not as funny though Otters, if you call it a twin otter. No, but someone, I'm just trying to make sure that you know before we get a lot of. We want your feedback, but we just don't need everyone to write us and tell us, "Hey, idiots!" That's I know that the the the, uh, the title of the show is going to be squirrels, otters, and beavers. beavers. Oh my. Or oh something my. like that. Stuffed beavers. <laughs> oh, maybe not the stuffed part. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Steph. I think we're actually hovering above the 50% mark. That's Just that's barely. Awesome. We're, we're hanging, barely. On, hang, yeah. hanging on by hanging squirrel teeth. Stuff. <laughs> hanging on by squirrel teeth. Is that what you just said? All right. Here we go. Um, tech. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Texas Charlie and Louisiana Steve apparently um, both sent us links to this very um, interesting story. Um, Texas Charlie says, uh, couldn't have been an accident. It's too perfect. He said, uh, here's one for your news folder. Now we're using it feedback. I love it when marketing goes wrong. And uh, let's see. The, so... I don't know. You, you may have all uh, seen this, uh, but, you know, we talked about the mistake with the paint job of the um, Cathay Pacific. Where they uh, forgot Cathay the C. Pacific. P- the C. <laughs> right. 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 They forgot the right. yeah. E-E-F. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, well, With no F in Pacific. Not to be left behind in the interesting paint job. This, this one really wasn't a mistake. And in fact, some people are thinking that it was done purposely. Uh, but apparently uh, Thomas Cook, uh, travel company Thomas Cook, is appealing to hip young millennials with its new package holidays, Cook's Club. And then on the side of this Thomas Cook airplane, it has in very large, bold letters, I and then heart, I love Cook's Club. Now, let's see, what kind of airplane is this? Is it a some type of an Airbus? I can't tell. I'm not sure. From this angle. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, So the word cooks is over the the two O's are painted in in large lettering over the, uh, let's see, that would be the 2R door, the second door from the front on the right. Oh, is it over the wing exit door or is it? Uh, No, it's actually a two door. Yeah, it's a forward of the, uh, the, uh, the, the wing. And so... So that so if you can imagine, you'll have to look at the uh, show notes to see this. So maybe but, it's an A330 or A321 or something. Well, I'm guessing 330, but 330. Uh, I, I can't be absolutely certain. I can't see enough detail in this time. Yeah, I can't either. I think it's, it does look like an Airbus, maybe a 321. And it would make sense of a 321 because the 321's no, door configuration the is this. way bigger than that, I think. You think so? Yeah. Okay. I don't have the picture in front of me. I'm just trying to remember from what I saw. No, I'm, okay. going, I'm going for 330. Okay. Well, whatever it is. Um, so when the door is closed, it looks fine. It says, I love cook's club. Uh, but if that two R door is open, so it kind of opens out and then slides forward, 
Um, so you're left with some of the remnants of the O's, and it, it spells out something entirely different. Yeah, cock-a-doodle-doo. Yes. Thank you. So I love <laughs> Cox Club, it says, on the side of the airplane. And uh, some people, again, are saying, you know what? Hmm, I'm not sure that that was a mistake or just some clever uh, clever positioning of the uh, lettering on the side. I don't know well, what you all think. To be I think fair, they roosters. Yeah, I think yeah, they roosters. Do. To, right? to get it perfectly, they would need to move those letters about 18 inches left because then you've got the C and the O and the door would have opened. It wouldn't have had that little end of O on there, which looks odd. Mm. And the C would have been more complete. Uh, it would have looked much better. So I don't think it was on purpose. And what's more, if you're going to do it, you do it on the um, the L doors, not the R doors, because you don't often open the R doors unless you're going to take catering and stuff in. Oh, it's the true. L doors that people get in, the left-hand doors, when I say L doors, that people get dis embark and disembark from. So that would have been the place to put it because it would have looked, uh, you know, every time you got on and off, you'd see it. That's true. And you know, how many times, as you say, will, will that door actually be opened? Yeah. Unless exactly. they're just trying to get ventilation. Yeah. I mean, and then they do call it an emergency exit, which is not. It's just a door. I mean, you obviously use it in an emergency to get out of the airplane, but it's not an emergency exit. Yeah. Well, it, it uh, got a chuckle out of me, that's for sure, when I was looking uh, yeah. at it on my phone in the van did, going did you guys to the get, hotel. Uh, <laughs> Yet, um, oh, uh, on, on the, the name of the program has just gone straight out of my head. The uh, the car driving program uh, with Jeremy Clark. Yeah, Grand, um, Grand Tour? Uh, no, Grand the Club. old one. Oh, the old one. Um, Which yeah. was Top Gear. Top Gear. Top Gear. Because yeah. uh, whenever they made one of their weird cars, they always used to have this kind of very amusing um, trick that they played. When they opened oh. the door, it said something very rude. <laughs> <laughs> i love that kind of humor um, <laughs> it's it's simple and crude absolutely just perfect yeah, it always gets a smile <laughs> yeah okay um moving on texas charlie also sent us uh the, this feedback to all who wish they flew an airbus here's the answer just stick it and dream and he has a picture uh, to make to give you some context here uh, he was at his local Home Depot, which is a, a home improvement store, a very large home improvement store here in the U.S., uh, again, Home Depot. And the item that he took a picture of on the shelf is a, an HDX mini sink plunger. I believe that's one of the Home Depot brands. And it is yellow, and it kind of has a bellows assembly to it and a black base, and then a oddly shaped uh, hand grip and it looks a lot like the side stick controller of an Airbus to me anyway <laughs> just yellow instead of yeah just really, whatever really color it yellow. Is. yeah yeah so good good uh, tip I, I actually think Texas it, it's Boeing's effort to uh, recreate uh, <laughs> an Airbus side stick but I think they decided they couldn't make it, so they uh, was beyond them. So they sold it to uh, Home Depot. Oh, and they turned it into a, a little plunger. Uh, plunger. plunger. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Well, I think that a uh, a, a mini uh, hand plunger would uh, come in handy on any Airbus aircraft. 
because oh, they're full actually of, for sure because there's one thing airports of, can't do and they they can't make the sinks drain so uh yeah i admitted faults in airbus oh yeah uh, well i don't yeah absolutely I don't, yeah, yeah the, the sink draining system whatever that is is useless i know what i'm getting you as a gift the next time i see you uh, a sink plunger thank sink you plunger. yeah yes I'll stick one in my flight bag. It'll come right. in very hopefully easy. They make, hopefully it's travel-sized. They make great holiday gifts. Right. Lovely. Yeah. Number seven, U.S. Army eyes high-altitude UAVs like the Airbus Zephyr. The U.S. Army Futures Command, a new group leading the service's modernization efforts, is enthusiastic about using high-altitude unmanned air vehicles for a variety of missions, uh, a variety of missions, including as communication hubs. Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson? What? He's the director of the U.S. Army Futures Command's Assured Positioning, Navigation, and Timing Cross-Functional Team. His singing is just a uh, in a part-time activity? Yeah, well, you know, he's getting old. It's oh, getting harder to be on the road and, you know, do all that. So, yeah. you know, well, looking I for must something. A little bit more of a desk job. Yeah. We had James Taylor in the chat room earlier. So, uh, you know, we have some famous people on this show. We do. The APG is where it's at. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, this guy, you want me to try this again? The director of the U.S. Army Futures Command, Future Command's Assured Positioning, Navigation, and Timing Cross-Functional Team. Well, that just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> Said I'd he like traveled. to see the uh, you know, <laughs> title on his desk underneath his name. Yes. Around the door. You know? I guess that would be the U.S.A.F.C.A.P.N.T.C.F.T. Same. Very simple. Yes. Said he traveled to the United Kingdom to visit Airbus, the manufacturer of the mini sink plungers. No, manufacturer of the <laughs> Zephyr, a high altitude UAV. In July, Zephyr set the world record for flight endurance in July after staying aloft using solar cells for 25 days, 23 hours, and 57 minutes. Wow. The aircraft flies as high as 74,000 feet during the daytime. And uh, let's see, I think they are an incredible capability that we should continue to invest science and technology dollars into research and development, he says. The British, the Zephyr program, I think there is a tremendous opportunity to partner with them. And uh, anyway, looks like they're going to possibly use this for uh, high altitude, um, like uh, Wi-Fi systems, um, yeah, internet. You could spy with them. Yeah. Maybe that's an idea there, Nick. Yeah. I don't know what uh, payload they could carry. Probably not very much because they're no. designed to be ultra light. Yeah. But uh, no, it's an interesting because remember we uh, touched on man-powered flight on, a, on mm -hmm. a plane tail, and this technology has moved on from there, and this is one of the byproducts. And it looks a fantastic piece of kit, doesn't it? It does. It does. Okay. Um, Jared, That's Jared. Uh, sent us this. Uh, just a quick follow-up uh, to the Falcon 50 crash at Golf Mike Uniform, um, Greenville downtown, that you all discussed in episode 342. Two things jump out at me from the article. First being the most striking, neither of the pilots operating the jet were properly certificated to be flying it. Yeah, we talked about that uh, episode 343, the last one. And the reason why uh, Jared hasn't heard that unless he's watched the video. Uh, I just published 343 like just a couple of hours ago. So uh, anyway, you'll hear us talk about that fact on 343. 
the captain flying only had a SIC type rating for the Falcon 50, and his first officer was only a private pilot with a... Just knock something down. Oops. Oh, is my watch. Uh, was a private pilot with a uh, without an instrument rating, but he had a multi-engine rating. Two questions come to mind uh, with this. One, how in the world does this happen? <laughs> That's what we were asking, too. Secondly, I wonder how long these two guys have been flying together. With the captain being an experienced jet pilot with that second-in-command type rating, I'm sure he was perfectly capable of operating the airplane. This leaves me wondering how long have they been getting away with this? That is a good question. Any? I don't think we have any answers no, to that question. No, I don't have any good answer on that. But. We're scratching our heads, too. There's, there's not an awful lot to stop it unless someone is a whistleblower and willing to dob these blokes in for what they're doing or the FAA happened to make an unannounced snap visit, a ramp check on them, which is also extremely unlikely because they're not common things mm -hmm. uh, and that no one is really going to pick up on it. I wonder, you know, you and I, Nick, know that uh, it's not uncommon that at some point uh, every couple of months to half a year or whatever, you show up to the airplane and there is somebody from the regulatory agency that says, hey, I'm going to be on your jump seat and giving you a, you know, in route inspection. Uh, so, you know, we know that that's part of, you know, our job, that we're going to be exposed to this kind of um, this kind of a check. But in the world of corporate aviation, I wonder how yeah, common for, for 135 is. operations here in the US. I'm not sure how often that happens, if ever. Well, I'll, I have a couple of people I can ask. Um, yeah. See if I can get some answers on that. That'd be good. That'd be good to know. Yeah. It would. I mean, you you get that. We we don't get that at all. Uh, I I don't think I've ever had the CAA oh. come on my flight deck to observe a flight. Um, the, it's all done through our training system. So when you do a line check, that guy there has been authorized by the CAA to conduct the line check, and he's more or less the CAA's uh, representative when he does that, even though he's a company pilot. So we don't get that that uh, FAA guy on the back seat. The only time I've ever had one in the in the aircraft is when I've had a ramp check and he literally walks in and wants to see your licenses and the aircraft documentation. And it was a very nice bloke, chatted about what we we're going to do that day and how we we're going to de-ice and everything and then uh, uh, drifted off again. Well, lucky you. <laughs> I'm just... I'm wondering in the, uh, you know, um, part 121 world, is that more airline specific? Are they looking specifically at what you're doing as pilots? Or are they looking at just the operation of the airline? You know, in, in most cases, Steph, I don't mm -hmm. think they're actually out there with the specific goal or aim of doing a, an in-flight inspection. I think they're usually traveling from one place to another to do some kind of an but not, not, I'm not saying. No, no, no. no I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. It's just sometimes, sometimes it is a uh, leisure really travel, but mm -hmm. I think it's usually in my experience, at least what they tell me is that they're going to this airport because they are doing an inspection of somebody, there. some airlines um, operation at this place. And but so they're really using it as travel to, you know, yeah, killing two birds with one exactly. stone basically. So makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right. Uh, for this uh, type of operation with a um, you know, a smaller jet and uh, obviously not a commercial uh, airline as such, uh, you'd think they would have an equally uh, close eye on them. You'd hope. And as we've talked about on this show, I think it was episode 90 or 90 or 70, 
uh, where we were, uh, I did the interview of the um, guy that uh, oh, was yeah. flying was in Europe. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember his name as well. Um, who flew for many years uh, in, for commercial airlines in Europe and the UK um, without having proper licenses. And wow. we've actually had some uh, of that happen here in the U.S. as well. In fact, I remember when I was new at Acme, um, all of a sudden they started getting really, you know, uh, almost anal about making sure that when we come to training that they check all of our documentation to make sure that we actually really do have a commercial rating or an uh, airline now airline transport pilot rating. And we have all these other things that we are required to have because apparently at Eastern Airlines, before their demise, there was some guy that had been flying with them as a captain for many, many years and did not have the proper uh, licenses or certificates to fly. That's a wiry I know. But on the other hand, you have to figure that if nobody ever thought that anything was amiss with the way he flew an airplane and operated the airplane or whatever, then maybe he was a perfectly gr- good pilot or great pilot and nobody ever had reason to wonder or suspect that this person didn't have the proper credentials. Yeah, good point. So how much how much was the public really in danger? I you know, I don't I don't know. Anyway, um the uh, let's see Jared continues. The other thing that jumped out at me was that investigators found the jet's braking anti-skid system placarded as inoperative. Do you think do you all think this could have contributed to the crash? It seems to me that if the system failed, the result would be the brakes locking up, causing the jet to skid to a halt more quickly. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And he says, thanks for the great show. Insert cliche aviation-related salutation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we Very love good. cliches here. Love Thank it. you, Jared, for pointing that out. Um, I think that if indeed the anti-skid braking system was inoperative then that would definitely be a, a pretty big factor and yeah but it, it wouldn't cause the brakes to lock up causing the jet to skid to a halt more quickly it would it no. would be disabled or it would be inoperative so it you just do a manual braking rather than mm-hmm. and it would probably braking. result in a longer uh, takeoff i mean a landing, landing dis- roll landing roll yep yeah. yeah i mean it may be that the crew because they weren't as familiar as they should have been with the aircraft that uh, they f- forgot or um, you know, let that one slip. They didn't realize that it was inoperative and they assumed it would happen and only realized too late that it wasn't happening and they, they were eating up their runway. But, uh, I mean, it, it reasonably obvious. We had a, uh, uh, a brake release uh, caution going into or landing at... Um, Ah, Miami uh, on this last trip. Uh, my first officer landing on on the rollout, uh, brake release, brake number five. Uh, and uh, along with that, um, basically means that brake's not going to work. Uh, but you've, you know, certainly on the number five wheel, you've got a whole bunch of other wheels. So don't worry, we were going to stop. But it did disable the auto brake system. And it's it didn't come up with a warning saying that the auto brake system has failed. It just turns amber. And unless you're looking down at the screens when that happens, uh, which is not, you know, when you're in the middle of a rollout, you tend to both be looking down the runway and make sure the aircraft's staying straight. It's not obvious, but, uh, I mean, it was obvious to the guy flying it that we weren't slowing down as well quickly as we should be. And when we got the warning, he just came on the brakes and, and brought the aircraft to a halt. So no, 
no problem. But, uh, you know, it, you, the runway does disappear very quick when you're belting along on a, in a 150-mile-an-hour tricycle. So, um, you know, uh, if you don't, if you don't ass- assess what the problem is and sort it out pretty quickly, that runway is, uh, is gone before you know it. Yes, you eat up that runway very, very quickly, don't you? Yeah. All right, and the, the other thing to mention is that uh, Dana on our last show, and again, Jared didn't hear this, uh, but uh, Dana talked about the fact that he had a friend who happened to witness the mm. landing of this Falcon. In this case, the guy said that he landed hard and it bounced and there was kind of bobbled down the runway uh, so that maybe combined with the fact that the uh, anti-skid system was inoperative resulted in the... Yeah. Sounds like they used up a lot of runway before they were in a position to break properly in the first place. Yeah. I guess we'll find out more about it uh, as the investigators continue with their analysis. But and the most value for an anti-skid system is also when you've got a wet uh, runway and uh, it's very easy then to lock the wheels up and uh, uh, because there's not a lot of friction between the wheels and the tarmac. When you've got a dry runway, and I'm trying to remember what the runway conditions were for this crash. But uh, you would never normally need the anti-skid system. It wouldn't actually activate on a normal landing if you're on a dry runway because uh, you never apply sufficient braking for the wheels to start skidding uh, normally because you're doing a relatively gentle uh, breakout. But when you're getting a little friction, very little friction between the wheels and the uh, tarmac, it's very easy to uh, lock those wheels up by p- putting too much braking on, in which case the anti-skid system then is important. Now, with your airplane, with all those wheels and all those wheel brakes and everything else, oh, yeah. that's Dozens definitely true. Now, <laughs> I fly an airplane that has four main landing wheels, and so four braking systems, and uh, they have to work a lot harder and uh, it is one of those things on my airplane that if the anti-skid system is an operative, it's a big deal, even on a dry runway landing. Uh, oh, wow. You have to be very, very careful with the way you apply the brakes because you can easily lock up a tire or a wheel and uh, blow a tire. And okay. we've had that happen. So, yeah, so your airplane and maybe the bigger wide bodies, not so much a big deal, but on uh, maybe some of the narrow bodies like mine with the uh, – twin tandem wheels uh it's it's much more of a big deal without sure. the uh, anisgood sure. system i was just going back trying to find the uh, weather conditions and i just can't find it quickly enough i'm sorry i know it was dry later in the day like as i don't, were, don't, I don't think, think it was, was wet no i don't think it was either but i don't know why i think that i'm, I'm not sure either and of course, it occurred to me we didn't discuss uh, on the time why the engines didn't run down. But of course, the cockpit had been separated from the rest of the aircraft, so any connections between the engine controls and the actual engines would have been severed. So it's quite likely that the FedEx weren't receiving any signals at all from that, the uh, yeah. And, and also, uh, in one of the reports that I read, uh, the one of the pilots was actually. His body was over the top of the throttle quadrant. Mm-hmm. Oh, so he might well have advanced the throttles. Yeah. yeah. No, okay. Uh, not good. Not good at all. All right. With that, I think it's now time for the best part of the show, which we all know is the old pilot's plane tales. Here we go. The old pilot's plane tales. Tizard's trunk. 
It's 1940 and Britain is alone amongst the countries of Europe to stand against the progress of the military forces of Germany. It would be an understatement to say that the war wasn't going well. Hours before the German invasion of France, by a lightning advance through the Low Countries, it became clear that Britain no longer had confidence in its Prime Minister, Chamberlain, and his prosecution of the war, so he resigned his position. Churchill was asked to lead a coalition government forward. His speeches were a great inspiration to the embattled British, and his first as Prime Minister included the famous lines. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. His oratory was electrifying, and it stirred life into the country when he told Parliament and the British people, We shall fight in France, we shall fight on the seas and oceans, we shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender, and if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. But his words were tinged with the realism that, should he be unable to convince the new world, America, to join the British people in their struggle, all might be lost. The manufacturing resources in the United Kingdom were at full stretch, and there was little spare capacity left to research and develop new technologies. Also, with the fall of France and with an invasion force assembling only 30 miles from the coast of England, despite Churchill's brave words, there was always the chance that should Britain fall, the secrets of its scientists and engineers would be lost to the enemy. So it was that, in the darkest of hours, Churchill was persuaded that he should share the country's most treasured and vital technologies with the United States in the hope that they might aid us in return. Churchill had serious reservations about freely giving away such valued technologies. Nevertheless, so desperate was he for American help that he approved the plan. 
Churchill communicated directly with President Roosevelt about the possibilities of a mission to be led by Sir Henry Tizard, the man who had conceived the idea. Born in Kent in 1885, Tizard was the son of a naval officer. He studied at Magdalen College, Oxford, working on mathematics and chemistry after which he became a researcher at the Royal Institute before returning to Oxford as a fellow. During the First World War, he became interested in aeronautics and learned to fly, rising to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in the Royal Flying Corps and then on to the RAF. After the war, he became a reader in chemical thermodynamics at Oxford. I could go on at length, but I think you've probably worked out that he was a very clever chap. Given the go-ahead to approach the Americans, Tizard gathered a small group of experts around him. He had Brigadier Wallace of the British Army, Captain Faulkner from the Royal Navy, Group Captain Pierce of the RAF, but most importantly, Professor John Cockcroft, a nuclear physicist, and Dr Bowen, a man instrumental in the development of radar. It was late in August 1940 when the material that they were going to take across the Atlantic was assembled and carefully placed in a black japanned deed box. Inside the innocuous-looking box were some of the most closely guarded technological secrets that Britain had to offer. Blueprints, plans, mathematical calculations and projects concerning jet engines, rockets, proximity fuses sonar, superchargers, gyroscopic gun sights, self-sealing fuel tanks, plastic explosive and a priceless object worth more than almost everything else put together. At the time, Britain led the world in radar technology. By the start of the war, the RAF had a chain of operating radar stations around the south and east coasts of Britain, which were capable of detecting aircraft at 15,000 feet out to a range of about 150 miles. This system operated on a wavelength of 10 to 13 metres, 23 to 30 megahertz. Airborne radar was also being tested at a wavelength of 1.5 metres, 200 megahertz, because it had been appreciated for some time that shorter wavelengths would have considerable advantages for radar. The problem with longer wavelengths was that the antenna couldn't be made highly directional, so ground returns often obscure the weak echoes from an aircraft. The obstacle that faced scientists trying to develop a short wavelength radar was that the transmitted power and receiver sensitivity decreased rapidly for the shorter wavelengths. It was decided that a 10 centimetre wavelength was needed to give the radar good target returns and allow it to be made small enough, particularly the antenna systems, to be fitted on aircraft and such. It was in the physics department of the Birmingham University that the most advanced vacuum tubes were being designed and developed. The concept of the magnetron wasn't new, but creating a high-power, stable, multi-chamber cavity device that could be created within a suitable vacuum tube and used to amplify a microwave radar transmitter was the vital breakthrough. It was two chain-home scientists, John Randall and Henry Boot, 
who created a device that would meet the demands of Bowen's calculations, the cavity magnetron. This device, roughly the size of a dinner plate, could generate radio waves at up to 10 kilowatts of power in the 10 centimeter wavelength microwave radar at hundreds of times the power previously seen, but in a tiny fraction of the size and weight of earlier equipment. This was the priceless device that lay within the deed box, one of the first 12 production copies of the resonant cavity magnetron. Now even more compact, the production version was small enough to fit in the palm of the hand and looked like a clay pigeon used in skeet shooting, with a few wires poking out, yet it could spit out pulses of microwave radio energy so powerful, conventional scientific wisdom still put anything like it years off. It had become Eddie Bowen's job to carry the box up to Liverpool to join the team on their ship. He had already had a few nightmares. Because the box wouldn't fit in the hotel safe, Bowen had spent the night with Britain's greatest military secrets wedged under his bed. In the morning, to add to his discomfort, the cabbie taking him to the train station wouldn't allow the small chest inside the taxi, insisting that it be placed on the roof. He finally reached the train and found the special empty compartment reserved for him and his precious cargo. When the train finally pulled into Liverpool's dockside station, Bowen didn't budge from his seat, following instructions to stay put. At last, a dozen fully armed soldiers marched down the platform and came to a glorious rifle-slapping halt alongside the carriage. A sergeant barked out some orders and dispatched three men to collect the cargo. Telling the story later, Bowen joked, I was beginning to feel that things were well looked after. Alternatively, if this was the enemy making off with Britain's secrets, they were making a spectacular job of it. Finally on board their ship, the box was locked in the strong room and the key holder, the third officer, briefed that in the event of an enemy attack, he should ensure that the box was dumped overboard. Shepherded by a pair of destroyers, the liner zigzagged its way across the Atlantic to dock in Newfoundland. Here, Tizard's trunk, the nickname there given the black box, was taken by the Canadian military to the U.S. border, where it would be moved under U.S. guard to the British Embassy in Washington. Now came the difficult part. Tizard didn't just want to hand over the crown jewels, but to have an equitable exchange of sorts that would bring the experts of both countries closer together and benefit both in a technological exchange. In particular, Tizard wanted access to the American Norden bomb site that, with its ability to tie into an aircraft's autopilot, plus its sophisticated stabilizing gyroscope, could outperform the British automatic bomb site. He arrived ready to work, leaving behind a world threatened with imminent disaster where every day, every hour counted. But Washington was still at peace and the weekend was still the weekend. By the time the Tizard mission sat down with their American counterparts in early September, the Blitz was underway. Their homeland was now subject to the gravest, most sustained aerial assault in history, and its very future might rely on these meetings. 
they began inauspiciously. The British, so confident in their new capabilities with radar, were surprised that the Americans were unimpressed and more curious about other technologies. The British were shaken. They told the Americans of progress made in anti-tank and anti-aircraft weaponry, which went over fine. They then displayed the design for the VT fuse, the first moment when the Americans seemed intrigued. Whittle's turbojet engine also proved another revelation. The Americans immediately saw the potential, and by 1941 the U.S. Army Air Corps was sending research and development teams to Britain. The Tizar delegation also visited Enrico Fermi, an Italian and naturalized American physicist, and considered by many to be the architect of the atomic bomb, at Columbia University. They told Fermi of the work that British nuclear physicists were doing at Birmingham University and their concept for an atomic bomb. Fermi was highly sceptical, mainly because his research was geared towards using nuclear power to produce steam, not atomic bombs. Of course, unknown to all at the time, the portable and deployable atomic bomb would eventually end the war. Tissard has strategically staggered the flow of information, and the last innovation to be presented, he thought, was the most valuable. He had Bowen reveal the box's final item, the cavity magnetron. The Americans were dumbstruck. They had never seen anything like it. They recognized Bowen's work for the genius it was, a revolution in modern warfare a radar that could be fitted to a plane. After that final reveal came a welter of activity. The Americans now had full faith in the Tizard mission's objectives and aims, and suddenly the Brits had access to US training methods. They observed battle fleet maneuvers. They were given access to America's Doppler radar, and RCA and Bell Labs, both previously off-limits to the Brits, were now studying their cavity magnetron. Bell agreed to quickly put it into production, and MIT founded the Radiation Lab to facilitate further research and development into microwave technologies. Bowen would later recall these weeks as electric. Tizard wanted only one thing in return, the U.S. Navy's Norden bombsite, the most advanced technology in high-altitude bombing. The RAF's desires were based on an earlier air demonstration at Fort Benning, where the painted outline of a battleship was the target. At 1.27, while everyone was still searching the sky for the B-17s, six 300-pound bombs suddenly burst at split-second intervals on the deck of the battleship, and it was at least 30 seconds later before someone spotted the B-17 at 12,000 feet high above them. The three following B-17s also hit the target, and then a flight of a dozen Douglas B-18 Bolos placed most of their bombs in a separate 600-yard-square target outlined on the ground. The Americans, wary of their technology falling into German hands, said no. Handing over the Norden bomb site had become as much a political as a technical problem, and its relative merits were being publicly debated in Congress weekly, 
while the Navy continued to say that the Norden was the United States' most closely guarded secret. So the hoped-for exchange became a one-way transfer of years of valuable knowledge and prized innovation. The main success of the mission had been the transfer of radar technology so that it could be manufactured in quantity in the U.S., However, the mission also opened up channels of communication for jet engine and atomic bomb development and is seen as one of the key events in forging the wartime Anglo-American alliance. The UK, though, was in a desperate situation and had felt compelled to release the technology that had an immense commercial impact after the war. Not only that, in order to fight the war, Britain needed funds and access to America's manufacturing might, but this also came at a great cost. Britain was loaned around 60 billion US dollars at today's value, which took over 60 years to pay off. On the ship back to England, Tizard completed his last order of business. He owed his nuclear physicist, Professor John Cockcroft, five pounds a bet they had made that before they could return from the States, Britain would have fallen. Although the Tizard mission was hailed as success, especially in radar development, it is probably significant that on his return to London on the 8th of October 1940, Tizard found that his job no longer existed. When mentioning the Tizard mission, the official historian of the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development, James Finney Baxter III, wrote, When the members of the Tizard mission bought the cavity magnetron to America in 1940, they carried the most valuable cargo ever bought to our shores. So another case of the uh, U.S. screwing the British. <laughs> yeah. you, you've got that slight hint? Uh, yes. slight. We picked up on it. Oh, well done. Congratulations. One-sided exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just take, 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 don't we? Well, yeah. We didn't end up in a very good position after the war. To be fair, we had huge debts. Our technology had all been revealed to other countries who exploited it uh, when we weren't in a position to. So, uh, uh, yeah, there you go. That's what happens when you, uh, you know, you know, a poor little island. Price of war, I suppose. Well, you know what? I think that Steph and I can say that we, as representatives of the United States of America, do appreciate Tizard and all that technology. And Oh, absolutely. Um, sorry about <laughs> not giving you the Norden bombsite thing. Yeah, so why? Particularly since, of course, it eventually arrived in the UK with the Eighth Air Force, uh, and I think uh, we'd eventually got you know our own version of it by then. But uh, uh, it was an interesting story. Um, I wanted to uh, um, very much uh, thank um, the gentleman who um, suggested that. So uh, that was Dave Booth. Yeah. Now Dave uh, is a research scientist himself. Uh, so, uh, you know, I suspect he, um, you know, uh, saw this subject as something that uh, touched on his realm. Uh, so he passed it on to me. So thanks very much, Dave, for that. Uh, that is uh, much appreciated. 
Um, and uh, anyone else who's got any uh, uh, suitable suggestions for intriguing, interesting, little-known stories that I might uh, develop into a plain tale, please uh, email me at uh, plaintales at alampilotguide.com. Yes. And you can spell that any way you want. Except for not P L A I N. Maybe I need to set up a an email address for that as well. <laughs> um, and it was interesting that you were telling about the um, the demonstration of the bomb site at Fort Benning, yeah, which is uh, just south of Atlanta uh, here in in the good oh, old right. state of Georgia. I didn't realize it was there. Okay. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Tissard also uh, did a lot of work with the Canadians. Um, I, I just can't make the stories too big, but uh, the Canadians also had a lot of input into the technologies that were developed during the war. They had a lot of clever blokes up there as well. So I don't want Liz to feel that north of the border had been left out. And they were much nicer to deal with than the... Uh, yeah, and, and probably much more apologetic. Yeah, they were <laughs> yes, a lot very more much apologetic, so. yeah. <laughs> uh, another great plain tale. Thank you for all the hard work that you put into that, Nick. Oh, thanks very much. much. I, I must admit, the amusing side of that story, I think, was this bloke with his little tin box... With it stuck on the roof of the, <laughs> the, roof of the car. <laughs> <laughs> driving through London in the Blitz. <laughs> Whoa. After he yeah. like slept with it under his bed all night, trying to yeah, guard it. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, very. You know, you just have the knack of of uh, really, you know, weaving a, a wonderful story. Thanks. Thanks very much. Captain Steve sent us some feedback, and uh, this is an interesting link to an article in the. 9news.com or on the 9news.com website in Centennial, Colorado. The Denver newsline. area. Yeah. Hmm? Denver area. Yeah. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I didn't know that. Uh, Nate Cup's lifelong dream came to fruition when Great Lakes Airlines hired him as a pilot in 2017. Not that long ago. I knew the hard work was going to pay off and the sweat equity that I put in was going to come about. The 29-year-old said, I got hired, I passed my check ride. I got in, and I was in love, man. Dream achieved. But soon after he was hired, the struggling Great Lakes Airlines ran into problems and the furloughs came, meaning newer hires, including Cups, were among the first to be let go. But fearing uncertainty, many more established pilots jumped ship, creating opportunity for employment. Eventually, he got a call back from Great Lakes Airlines with good news asking him to return to the company. And they say, you just need to take a pre-employment drug test so we can get you on the line. I'm like, perfect, man, Cup said. He uh, got another call a few days later. Uh, we found THC marijuana in your urine. For a second, I couldn't breathe, Cups recalled. And I said, ma'am, with all due respect, I've never done any illegal substance in my life. There's a mistake here. The lab did a second test. No mistake, Cups definitely had THC in his system. And the Federal Aviation Administration notified Great Lakes. He lost his job and his medical certification, meaning he couldn't fly at all. I felt completely defeated, he said. I felt like all this work done and now it's like to ashes, to ashes. Unemployed, Cups said he racked his brain trying to figure out how this was possible. He got the call to take a drug test on a Friday it was set up for the following Monday, and over the weekend, he and a friend went to the casinos. 
He said they didn't drink, but Cups did eat one of his friend's sugar-coated candies laying out in their hotel room. It just tasted like a regular piece of candy. It didn't smell like it was a THC or a marijuana edible. I'd never seen it in my life, man, he said. It looked good, so I had one. Cups said he didn't really feel anything after he ate one and fell asleep. Edibles have a wide range of potency. After losing everything, he called his friend, who confirmed the gummy candies were marijuana edibles that he takes for pain. <laughs> nice friend, huh? Great friend. Robert, yeah, Robert Sanchetta is a licensed physician with the FAA who works with pilots trying to get their medical certifications back. And he said, my bias right off the bat is this story can't be right. He's lying to me. But when he took on his case, he was reluctant uh, at, because when he took on his case, he was reluctant to believe him. But he said he worked with Cups, and uh, the more he worked with him, the clearer it became for him. Over time, Nate appeared to be honest, Sanchetta said, and it was a huge leap on my end to present this to the FAA as an incidental exposure. The FAA said in 2016, 58 pilots tested positive on a drug test, but Sanchetta said that this could be the first case of its kind. Even so, the FAA agreed with Sanchetta's report, answering Cups' many prayers. They gave him his medical certification back, allowing him to fly again. Oh, I just cried, man. Just kind of sobbed in joy and in pain. This eighth, eight-month fight, it was just grueling. Sanchetta said most pilots lose their medical certifications, given them back. Wait. Sanchetta said most pilots who lose their medical certifications get them back, but they've got to commit themselves to an expensive and exhaustive program. Uh, let's see. Uh, Great Lakes Airlines, which stopped all flights in March, had a policy that would have prevented Cups from ever working for them again because of the positive drug test. And uh, let's see, I think that uh, Great Lakes, um, oh, because of that policy, uh, Cups, the guy that ate the uh, THC-laden uh, Candies is uh, working in sales and hasn't decided what his next step in aviation will be. So, so kind of like a bittersweet ending, I guess. It sounded like it was going to be a happy ending, but uh, well, I was going to say sweet bitter. He ate the sweet <laughs> and it had a bitter result. Yeah, mm -hmm. good point. A sweet bitter. <laughs> yeah. So that so I guess Great Lakes is uh, is no more. It's it's uh, no more. Not working. Yeah. Okay. It's one of the ones that was a casualty of this uh, pilot shortage mm -hmm. uh, because they just can't, you know, they, and they, they serve a lot. What do they call those uh, destinations? Oh, they're, um, uh, my gosh. Well, essential they're, air essential service. Essential air I think. service, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah EAS. Uh, places that, in other words, are subsidized by the U.S. government to provide air service to some of these places that wouldn't get it because it's just not financially, commercially, whatever. Viable. Uh, okay. Yeah, viable. Um, but even then, um, they, you know, they don't pay as much as other regionals and or majors, of course, and uh, they just can't get the uh, the pilots, qualified pilots, to to stay fly their flights. Yeah. yeah. So, well, if you live in a country where taking marijuana is legal and uh, it's around, uh, even in those states, I suspect where it's not legal, it'll still be around. Um, and your job is absolutely. Um, predicated on not having any drugs in your body at all by the occasional uh, adult beverage, uh, but certainly not when you're going to work. 
um, then you know you just say we've just got to be so squeaky clean. There's, there's no um, there's no second guessing that, and uh, it'll t- teach him for pinching his mates' g- candy. candy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I do feel bad for him though because if you're if I mean there's a lot of us out there who don't even have that on our radar. I certainly wouldn't, especially no. if it was a friend that you know was a close friend. I'm sure I have friends who maybe even fall into this category that I don't really realize. And it, it you know if you're uh, on vacation and happens to be there on the table sure why not i, I could definitely see doing exactly yeah. what this guy I, I i mean i just feel very terribly for him and it's you know it's one of the interesting things about this country isn't it it's uh, not a legal substance federally and it's not a legal substance for um a lot of professions and if you're in one of those professions i guess it's just a good lesson for the rest of us that you better ask before you just blindly consume something that does not belong to you or was not purchased by you or you're not sure. Interesting story of one of our captains was uh, um, reporting to come out of the hotel, check out of the hotel before a flight returning. He was in uh, Japan and he went to uh, the, uh, you know, the drinks uh, dispenser on the wall there, put his yen in and um, pressed the button for what he thought was lemonade. And he got a lemonade-tasting drink out of there, and he was halfway through it before one of the Japanese cabin crew went, Oh, Captain, you're, you're having drink? <laughs> and he said, Yes, yeah, lemonade. Oh, that's not lemonade. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was an alcoholic beverage. It was, yeah, uh, yeah. But he had no idea because it was all written in Japanese. Right. How would you know? <laughs> so he's gone, Oh, no. So he phoned the company, and they, he had to go back to uh, bed for twelve hours until he'd, you know, gone through the legal period and uh, of when you know consuming alcohol, even though he hadn't drunk very much of it. We didn't want to take the risk. No, I mean that's so better they, to to just fess up and say. Yep. Yep. So just they they just honest. put a twelve-hour delay on the flight, and everyone went back to. The- <laughs> oh, wow. Yep. And I will I will say this about cannabis, about THC, about marijuana. It is a highly detectable substance, and in some cases for up to days or weeks by urinalysis, hair analysis, saliva tests. So I was going to ask yeah. you how it works in the hair thing, because like that, it'd be there for months, wouldn't it? He, I, you know what? I don't know all the details about hair samples. For I think the most common way to test is just via a, a, a urine drug screen. Okay. Yeah. Cool. But even there, it can be days to weeks sometimes. Yeah, I just want to don't want to take the chance. Don't take the chance. Mm. But if you inadvertently do it, then you know what well, do you do? I mean, you know, I think that's one case where the legal process has to, yeah, has to work. And it looks like can, the legal process did work in this case. Unfortunately, yeah. the company didn't. Well, <laughs> didn't it's, last. and then it may just be a trust, you know, on the part part of the company. Right, and you know, trying to, I would imagine that if he really wants to fly for someone else. Um, I think he can be upfront and honest and make his case about it. I mean, it doesn't hurt to apply and and see what happens. Yep. Oh, boy. Main man Mike is at it again in the chat room. Oh, what's he doing this time? He says, "Uh uh-oh, you're in trouble. (laughs) Oh, yes. Instead of you're in trouble. Okay. I'm a bit surprised uh, if he's got his medical back and everything's above board that he hasn't managed to get some work, though, because... uh, you know, there's plenty of airlines out yes. there, mm-hmm. regionals that seem to be applying right now. Well, hopefully he'll be applying to uh, other airlines, especially now that Great Lakes is no more. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 
moving on. Um, Silviu Nikulescu, thank you for the phonetic spelling of your name, sir, sent us some audio feedback. Hello, APG crew and community. Silviu here, and this is the short version of how I got beat by the aviation bug, since I wasn't an aviation geek. Having to fly from Romania, my native country, to United States scared the heck out of me. After college, the decision of working in my family's trucking business came, and the entire job is a road trip to wherever and back. Jumping from science and astronomy podcasts to other science podcasts, I stumbled upon Skeptoid, a podcast which dissects conspiracies and urban myths. And it had a couple aviation-related ones, which became my favorite. I knew that was the path I wanted to take in life. So, I got my hands on a book, Professional Pilot's Career Guide, written by Robert P. Mark. I live in a Chicago suburb, just a stone throws away from KPWK, currently known as Chicago Executive. So I decided to find flight training there, since it was really close by. Long and behold, one of the instructors available was none other than the author whose book gave me a new perspective and guided me on the path, Robert P. Mark. So after a quick meetup, it was clear that he would be a good fit for my learning style. As of right now, I'm sitting at 20-some-odd hours in my private pilot's training, and while I might never become a good pilot, I will always be a great student, since in my mind, learning never stops. As for where does the APG come in? I don't remember exactly. Must have been around episode 240, when I started listening. But at that time, I had not even taken my introductory flight. So you have also been responsible for inspiring me in finding a passion that will turn into a future career. And in closing, I have to say my thanks to the crew, Captain Dana, who has inspired me in pursuing a career that will change my life, even though I'm 30 years old now, to Steve Horns, How I Got Here series, and to many more listeners who have sent in feedback and inspired a dream to ever inch closer and closer within reach. What better way to bask in the majesty of the clear night sky of this grand place we call the universe, then from 35,000 feet. Tailwinds, clear skies, countless IPAs for the crew, and yes, rivers of well-aged bourbon for you, Dana. On behalf of all the community whom you've inspired, thank you, and whom you've yet to acquire, thank you. Thank you, Silvio. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Hearing his story, being inspired by our podcast and others, and just the serendipity of picking up this, you know, the the book written by Rob Mark, and then eventually actually becoming a student of Rob. By the way, Rob, uh, co-host, longtime co-host, not anymore. I believe he he left that that job over at uh, Airplane Geeks podcast, but uh, for many, many years, he was one of the hosts of the uh, Airplane Geeks podcast and now senior editor at Flying Magazine and uh, a CFI. And uh, that's just awesome to hear. That's just a wonderful story. Thank you, Silvio. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Nice to uh, get to know our listeners a little bit more as well. Appreciate that. Yeah. And I hope uh, we wish you luck and um, I'm sure that you'll want need it uh, for your pending or your upcoming career in aviation. Indeed. All right. 
continuing on, um, Tim sent us this. Oh, oh, it's Van Ram. Tim Van Ram. You ever heard of that guy? Yeah, I met him. Haven't heard, hadn't, haven't heard from Tim in quite some time. Good well, to see you're you still go. out there. Just today. Sent this yeah. He says, um, actually, this is to you, Nick. Hey, Captain Nick. Forget flying under bridges. Here's a video of a Beechcraft twin flying through a hangar. Yeah, I know. I saw yeah, it. Saw, yeah, he sent a uh, link to this YouTube excerpt from the movie uh, that was uh, put out there in 1963. And it's a great movie, actually. It's a mad, mad, mad world. And the flying scenes, I'm sure, inspired parts of Airplane. The, oh, uh, absolutely. Movie. Particularly when he nosed into the front of that terminal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, the, he says, the stunt of flying through the hangar at Charles Schultz Airport in Santa Rosa was performed by Frank Tailman, who flew, uh, flew through it three times, reported crosswinds at 14 miles per hour and only 10 feet of vertical clearance. Whew. The movie folks asked for a fourth attempt but Frank said that that was enough. I'm not the, surprised you keep doing it. Eventually, you're going to get it wrong. <laughs> the hangar is still there today. I parked my 1962 Thunderbird convertible with license plate Speedbird there recently at a car and planes show. Now, I do have, well, I did. I had to actually close my Chrome browser because it was like making my C computer CPU go ballistic and the fan was making all kinds of racket. So I'm going to see if I can find that closed tab that I had all poised before. Uh, hang on here. 11 tabs. Dun, 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 dun. Yes, this will all be fixed in post. Here we go. Uh, I'm going to have to fast forward it to the place. This is a beach. Um, what do they call it? A beach 19? The twin tail uh, beach. Right? Is that what that is, Steph? The I don't know. I think it's a Beach 19. Come on, people. Help me out in the chat room. Um, all right. I'll do a search. Uh, I, am. Uh, I should know this. Uh, it's Beechcraft 1900. No, I don't want a 1900. Yeah, it's not a 1900. No, it's definitely much smaller than that. Um, it's probably something it's else. I know I'm just fixated on no, Beach 18? Beach, uh, I don't know. I'm just reading. The 19 is the Musketeer. No, that's not it. <laughs> Great airplane, though. I've flown it. Beach well, 18. Yeah, right. 18? Well, that's that's Beach it. 18. Beechcraft 18. 18. There we go. Actually. Yep. That's a sweet-looking machine. It is. It's very, in fact, uh, there's a guy that does uh, some really nice aerobatic flying yeah, in we saw major air shows. Yeah, um, yes, and we're probably going to see it again next year when we're in Oshkosh, I bet. Excellent. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to cue this up to the appropriate point, I think. Okay, here we go. I'm going to play a little excerpt from the movie. It's a mad, 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 mad world. Anyway, just a little excerpt, uh, and, and you, you have to watch. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can watch it. It occurs about the, let's see, two, 
43, no, two, about the 235 mark of this clip where they go through the, and this is not a huge hanger. This is one of those, uh, like a Quonset uh, hut kind of configurations, not a big square hanger, but a kind of a, a circular. Kind of a uh, dome shape. Yeah, like a dome. And uh, they say that uh, there was only 10 feet of clearance, vertical clearance, uh, I guess above the uh, tail of this Beach 18 when it went through. That's some pretty good, pretty precise flying, I would say. Absolutely. Good job. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Tim, for for sending that in. Good stuff. We do appreciate that. And it uh, looks like one more here that we can talk about. Tom, Thomas Troutman sent this in. It's Tom from Pittsburgh again. First off, I have to apologize for being super late to this feedback. Life has taken over and kept me more than busy. But an insanely big thanks to Captain Nick for reading my old pilot tales story suggestion, Talk of Flight 110, and making it into an episode so quickly and well done. I guess it's the one about the uh, dead stick landing on the uh, levee uh, outside of New Orleans. That's exactly right. Uh, with the amazingly uh, amazing one-eyed uh, captain, yeah. Captain Carlos Darnando. Mm. Exactly. Great job. This is from a while ago, I'm aware. I'm aware. I caught the episode on my daily commute to my base when I worked at Acme Friendly. I have no idea what that is. Uh, to hear the story that motivated me to continue my career in such an in-depth and professional manner brought a huge smile to my face while making my one-and-a-half-hour drive to my base in the wee hours of the night, as you guys always do during that drive. We're, we're happy to be there with you, Tom. Anyway, so sorry for the late feedback, but I've been studying for recruitment. My, no, excuse me. Recurrent. Yeah. So sorry for the late feedback, but I've been studying for recurrent, my multi-ride, which I passed yesterday. Well done. Interviews and my ATP written while flying a lot through my last days at Acme Friendly. Again, Captain Nick, thank you so much. You're awesome for an Airbus guy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know my neck like a dead albatross. <laughs> I think a backhanded comment, right? A compliment? <laughs> Absolutely. Backhanded compliment, yeah. Yes. Uh, secondly, I have a quick question to ask of everyone from the APG crew. As a newly minted multi-engine pilot, I accepted an offer to fly for a regional carrier. This obviously is a huge jump for anyone in a similar situation going from a 135 single-engine carrier to go fly for the regionals. Any sage advice from the crew for me uh, or those like me making the leap? Hopefully, I'll make it to my dream airplane after some years, or at least it's Boeing Twin, which is unironically the Mad Dog slash 717. That airplane was the first I rode on and started this whole flying thing for me way back in 1999. What do you mean way back in 1999? That's like last week, isn't it? <laughs> this guy's a young guy, man. He's a millennial. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to hearing back from you guys. If any of you are in Pittsburgh or Western PA, we can grab a couple of beers. And then I'm, I'm assuming we'll be drinking them as well. Uh, until then, <laughs> fair skies and tailwinds. Tom, <laughs> I'd like go. to grab some things. Yeah. <laughs> sure. don't, don't tell Nick that 1999 is coming up on 20 years ago. Cause... What? Yeah. Wow. Sorry. It is. That was like, uh, I, yeah, I've been with this out. We're going to party like it's 1999. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. 
back in the days of Y2K and all of that. Yeah. What a crazy time. I know, right? Yeah. Well, Tom, great feedback. Thank you very much for sending it in and uh, kind of uh, sharing your, uh, your, your thankfulness for um, Captain Nick's wonderful talent. And uh, even if he is an Airbus guy and uh, yeah, we feel the same way. (laughs) Good to hear about your, uh, your journey. It's always interesting to hear how everybody's doing. And uh, so uh, here comes the uh, sage advice from Dr. Steph. So I've had, obviously this doesn't apply to me because I don't fly for the airlines and I've never done a hundred or uh, 135 single engine uh, operations either. However, I've had quite a few friends in the form of previous uh, flight instructors of mine who I've kept in touch with who have been in maybe not quite the same situation because most of them have gone from flight instructing to being a regional airline pilot. Um, but what I've heard from all of them is it's it's a lot of study, a lot of work, hard work. Um, but if you're committed to it and you take the time to to do it and, um, you know, not allowed, allow yourself to be too distracted during the process, um, it's like drinking out of a fire hose, but you come through on the other side having achieved that goal and that dream. So you're there, stay with it, stay the course, you know, it's just a couple, couple quick months, I'm sure of uh, pretty intense training. And then you'll be on the other side of all of that and living the dream. Nick? Uh, no, nothing to add to that, really, because, uh, yeah, I, I'm not a millennial. But, uh, no, I just want to... <laughs> Dude. Well, I neither am I. Thank you, I just want to thank you for your, uh, your your very kind comments. And, uh, you know, with someone starting out in career, it's so different to the way uh, Jeff and I uh, kicked off our careers. I don't think we can really relate uh, as as we would like to. But, um, you know, I think it's fantastic that you're making this step, and I uh, look forward to hearing about your success in the future. I think Nick and I are like, we feel like we're grandparents, and (laughs) all of you youngsters (laughs) are out there, and we're so proud of you uh, for for taking this on, and we know that you guys are going to kill it, and uh, it's going to be a great experience for all of you, and we just love kind of living vicariously through you, and it kind of reminds us, of when we were young. Yeah, I'll be vacating my uh, chair in uh, 332 days, so you can have that seat, no problem. <laughs> um, the only thing I can say and add to what Steph said um, is that uh, we we know some people that, were, are, that are doing the same exact thing, going from a, a single pilot, single engine kind of operation to the multi-engine regional carrier airline part 121 world and it's it's not the same and you just have to learn to adapt to the fact that you're part of a crew and you're not on your own anymore and just um it's a lot of stuff you just gotta keep forging forward and uh, just taking it all in and as steph mentioned the the fire hose thing you know just trying to take as much of it as you can and uh, chair flying as much as you can and not getting too uptight about it, you know, just. I mean, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but there seems like, and it's true in my job too, where there's a lot of things that are repetitious from day to day, you know, that happen the same way. So the more you can practice that, um, the more it will be second nature and you won't have to think about that when you're doing things like your check ride or some evaluations and things like that. So the more it can be routine and second nature, even though it's new to you, um, I think the easier it'll make it for you. Exactly. All right. 
and then you know you have to have a certain level of trust uh, with the person that you're flying with or paired with that they have at least as much skill and experience as you have and that you can be sure that being part of the crew and backing up that other person is uh, you know something that you can you can trust yeah learn your stuff and then be confident about it yeah and that's our sage advice however sage it is take it for what we offer it for which is for nothing worth a whole lot of nothing monetary (laughs) value wise for me it's a sage and onion device Uh, device (laughs) advice damn well that brings us to the end of our show and i had a lot of fun today um thank you everybody for sending in all that great feedback and uh all that uh news and uh stuff it was a lot of fun talking about and uh if you're new to the show and you want to learn more about it uh you can access that information by heading over to airlinepilotguy.com again uh information about the crew and our background, uh, including our great producer, Liz Piper, who is a resident in Toronto, Canada, and uh, the community, and merchandise, and the coffee fund, and, oh, the APG library, if you're interested in learning or finding new aviation-related uh, books, whether they be fictional or nonfiction or whatever. Uh, Tiffany has done, um, she's our librarian and uh, she has put up this awesome page on our website again APG Library and uh, so much more there on the Airline Pilot Guy site check it out if you don't mind and we have uh, applications for both Android and iOS and they're free and they're ad free and it's a great way to interact with the community as well and we're also on social media we are you can head over to Twitter and find us using the handle at APG Crew Uh, Pinned to the top of that page, you'll find all of our individual account information as well, should you wish to contact us individually. Um, But you can certainly send us, uh, you know, short 280 character messages there, um, links and other things. We appreciate that. Or head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy, mostly being manned by the wonderful Captain Nick and producer Liz. Um, However, if you leave something for one of the rest of us, it will certainly get to us there as well. And it's a nice way to interact with some of the community check it out yes also uh, we have a slack team on the slack platform headed up by our faithful pilot Hillel and he is going to tell you how you can join the team APG listeners please join us on our slack team slack is a communication coordination and sharing platform that works on your mobile laptop or browser on slack we share ideas and news we suggest episode and plane tales topics we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, one one Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel, and until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day.